0: Love talk radio hey
1: good morning, everybody. Good morning, and this is Kim with Black free thinkers and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. I'll say that one more time. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you and Today is January eleventh, Sunday. Wow. We're already into the new year, if I have not said it. Happy New Year to all you wonderful people out there. Happy New Year, Raina. Raina's with us today. Hello. Mm. <laughs> Say hello. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, today we're going to be talking about black women in black history. We're going to be talking about grassroots and mass movements. This is part two of a four-part series. Last week we did part one. Check it out. It was a great show. I'm looking at the numbers, and the numbers look wonderful. So I believe, you know, people are out here listening. They're learning, and, and that is what we want. We bring these shows to you because we want to pique your interest. We want you to go out and do some research on your own, fact-check us. We don't have a problem with that. Um, It's it's just so much to learn and not enough time to teach it all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, most definitely. And so today is the second part. Next week is part three, and we will be talking about, you know, women being co-opted out of these movements, yet we are still expected to fund them and to maintain them and to keep them going. But what what many people don't want to acknowledge, especially some of these, you know, men out here, they don't want to acknowledge that the majority of these, well, I mean, I think pretty much every movement that we had has been initiated by a woman. And they've all well, been I made- wouldn't just put it on the men either, because oh, yeah. there's a lot of women who are very patriarchal too. Exactly, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today, about female misogynists, if you will. And, um, you, so that's going to come up at some point during the show, but, um, because it always does. So, <laughs> so it, it should be a really good show. Um, we want to talk about, you know, um, Black Lives Matter and we're going to talk about, you know, the three founders of that, which is Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi, in addition to talking today about, um. Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker, but I want to make sure that people understand because there's been some conflict about the black lives matter. And, you know, one of the major conflicts, well, I'm going to talk about two major conflicts. The first one is you have some people out here who are not including black women and girls and trans women. And they are, they, they are black lives. They should be included as well, And we've gotten some pushback from some men saying, "Well, you're, you're you know derailing the movement when you start focusing on these gender issues. And see, this is the reason why I tell you all you need to understand history and understand how this you know how this works and how people work in patterns. This is the same issue they had with the civil rights movement. And so we had the black feminists, and there was some, you know, some division there, and the black men were saying to the black women, come over here with us, we need you, and they promised to focus on gender issues, which never happened, but, um, you know, I'm going to read you a quote here, and it was talking about Dorothy Height, you know, who founded the um, the, um, National Council of Negro Women her and, and a head Hedgman. And basically they were raising concerns regarding women's participation in the march, the March on Washington. And they were going back and forth with Bayard Rustin and who told them that by virtue of their participation in various organizations, women were in fact represented in the march. And so basically, um, they went back and forth. There was some conflict there. And Dorothy Hyde said there was an all-consuming focus on race. We women were expected to put our energies into it, the march. Um, there was a low tolerance level for questions about women's participation. And so we're starting to see that again. And like I said, people, you know, these things have patterns. Which is why we point them out and we want you all to understand. Because basically what they're saying is, you know, talking about gender related issues. Um, they feel a lot of men feel like women are sidetracking the movement. And, you know, it's it's just really interesting how all of this comes about. But um that's the purpose of this series here to talk about these particular issues and, and why we cannot allow that to happen and why it's important for us to stop it and nip it in the bud now. So that's one major issue. Um, the other major issue with the Black Lives Matter that I'm seeing is you have members of the old civil rights vanguard trying to come in and take over. This is the millennial movement. Let these young people leave. It is our job to be here to counsel them and advise them and and basically to fund them. That is our job, you know, because most of us will get in the way. And that's the absolute, you know, honest truth there. And so it's it's important that we allow, because, you know, you, you hear all these people talking about the youth and about how unmotivated they are and, you know, all of these negativities about the youth, but look at what they're doing. They're out here doing something that you wouldn't do. You, you didn't want to get out here and protest. You, many of you were out here say, well, things are okay. Or I got mine. And you think you got yours. You, <laughs> it is just, it's, it's just interesting. It's, it's, go ahead right now. And then there's people like Oprah, you know what I mean? Who are coming out saying that the movement lacks leadership because there's a lack of a central figure. You know what and I mean? see, and see, and that's the problem. That's one of the reasons why Martin Luther King and Ella Baker came to odds, because Ella Baker felt that, you know, the movement should not be built around one specific person. Um, yesterday there was a Twitter chat with the UIC Social Justice Initiative Project, and I was over there retweeting um, a lot of what they had put out there and what they were talking about. And it was absolutely dynamic. If you all are interested in reading this, the hashtag is Selma2Ferguson, and that's the number two, Selma2Ferguson. And it was a young lady that tweeted this, and her name is Sana Sheila or something like that, Sana Sheila. I apologize for destroying your names. Everyone who listens to this show knows I will kill your name. So um, her tweet was, it's important to keep movement anchored in a purpose that we can focus upon, not a person or organization. And I'll repeat that. It's so important to keep movements anchored in a purpose that we can focus upon, not a p- person or organization. That is true. And I'm this sorry, is what Kim, we... but I need you to say that one more time for the people in the back. <laughs> okay. One more again for the people, that, okay? That is, the $5 that is I'm the so and- right. <laughs> Because it is so relevant and outside, not just to civil rights, but even to the atheist, secular, and humanist community. Exactly. But say it again. So we're going to say this two more times, all right? So a (laughs) quote from Shana Shula was, it's so important to keep movements anchored in a pers- purpose that we can focus upon, not a person or organization. One more time, it's so important to keep movements anchored in a purpose that we can focus upon, not a person or organization and that is correct Lena. not only with what's happening with you know the um, protests across the country now but also with the movement even within the secular community because look at what happened when martin luther king was assassinated you know people got scared and it just collapsed on itself and and it is and that's the reason why you know we say some of the things that we say about the secular community because you have too many people that are trying to elevate themselves self-anointed self-appointed you know leaders and, and and they want you to focus on them and what they're doing and they have no purpose they have no foundation you're being led off into the ditch somewhere and this is what we are warning against because you're, many, too many people are following behind a person or a personality, you know, the cult of personality. And this is why movements like this collapse. And this is why we say atheism is not enough. But anyway, we're not here to talk about that, but I'm going to let Raina get her two cents in. No, I just, I mean, you, you basically said everything that I would have said. I think that there are some people who are are, are much too focused on a person rather than a purpose. You know, right. they're, they're wrapped up in all of this rumor and innuendo, and they're not really looking at what um, some of these people are, are looking to gain by trying right. to put some of this information out there or... Um, who, what they're tra- or you know how they're trying to poison the well or any of that. They're not they're not interested in that. They're not looking in that direction. And um, right, I think not all thinkers think freely. Right, exactly. So it's just oh yeah, but I mean it's too many people looking for a central figure, looking for a leader, and that ties back into what you said about Oprah and a number of other people that have criticized. This particular movement, because one thing that Ella Baker, you know, um, stressed when she was helping Diane Nash put together SNCC, was that you know it should be group leaders, but not a central leader to focus on. And so, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and you know we believe in that now. Well, you and I do, and and a few people that you know we uh, associate with. But yeah, you know, um, and that's the reason why and. that's why I always compare the secular community to the church. Because so you're doing the same thing. You have a figure that you've anointed as the leader or the preacher or the pastor or whatever, and then when it comes out that this person is human has fallibilities, then you want to grumble. But then if you say something in public about them, then all of a sudden you better not saying nothing bad about my pastor. So I mean, Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. Exactly. Oh, it's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. And, you know, I mean, for those of you all who know us, you know, we move on. We're marching on. And, no, we're not going to stop criticizing. We're not going to start, stop critiquing. We're not going to stop confronting. It's just not going to stop. So if that's what you are trying to achieve, you failed miserably. Because it's only going to get harder. Because now that we got a couple of things, you know, out the way, now we can hit as hard as we want, which is, ah. Anyway, so I want to give a couple of quotes from some people. Um, I want to give a quote by Fannie Lou Hamer. And this quote is You can pray until you faint, but unless you get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. Now, I'll repeat that. You can pray until you faint, but unless you get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. That is Fannie Lou Hamer. I will give a quote from Ella Baker, and this is her quote. There is also the danger in our culture that because the person is called upon to give public statements and is acclaimed by the establishment, such a person gets to the point of believing that he is the movement. I'll repeat right. that. There is also mm-hmm. the danger in our culture that because a person is called upon to give public statements and is acclaimed by the establishment, such a person gets to the point of believing that he is the movement. And so I'm in um, church right because I, like I, okay. <laughs> I feel like I've been. Somebody and I feel like somebody like somebody you know, somebody's trying to is in the seat of the scornful right now. Yeah, you're <laughs> So that's uh, kind of... Child, I think they see now, the, blue, now, I have to the say, blue I have blue. to say something. Kim taught me about the seat of the scornful because I never went to a church where that was a thing. So... <laughs> <laughs> so you said about the seat of the scornful... I didn't know about that until I mean I mean I had heard about it from other people but not like I never really questioned it. Like I was like, Okay, whatever. Sounds like a really <laughs> uncomfortable chair. You know what I mean? <laughs> I had never really heard about it described as as the way that you've described it. And, yeah, and yeah. I've never seen it. I've never seen it in action. You know what I mean? Right. So. <laughs> yes, child, the seat of the scornful. And, you know, I feel like I've been super glued to it, but the thing is is that I don't care. But uh, let me give you a quote from Septima Clark. Even though we didn't put her information in the body or the the byline or the storyboard to the show, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about her today as well because it's important that you understand who she is also. But her quote, I believe unconditionally in the ability of people to respond when they are told the truth. We need to be taught to study rather than to believe, to inquire rather than to affirm. So we'll say that one more time. I believe unconditionally in the ability of people to respond when they are told the truth. We need to be taught to study rather than to believe, to inquire rather than to affirm, Septima Clark. So, hey, you know, these, you know, women, you know, were wise, very wise. And they're just only a handful. I mean, Dr. Dorothy Height, you know, um, you know, um, I'm just sitting back and I'm like, guys, this is history. You know, Diane Nash. You know, she founded SNCC, which is Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and they called it SNCC. As a matter of fact, one of my members, Frank, he said his dad participated in SNCC. So, I mean, it, it's just it's absolutely, you know, mesmerizing. Don't forget about Daisy Bates. You know, um, you have to go look her up as well. And, you know, we had some allies out there. You know, we had Miriam Glickman, you know, and this was a Jewish civil rights activist. And, you know, we have some allies like that, you know, working with us today. So, um, yeah, you know, we want you guys to go out and and do some research and to understand who these people are and their role. And we want to talk about, again, you know, how women and their roles and their place in history has been co-opted by a number of people um, you know, too many people do not know who these women are, and, you know, to me, that's a shame. You know, they should know who these people are. So um, we're going to get started as soon as I find my tab here and <laughs> get started on um, talking about these things today. Raina, um, let's, let's talk about Fannie Lou Hamer. Let's start with her and the reason why, you know, um, I want you all to kind of get an understanding of Fannie Lou Hamer is because, you know, she was pivotal, she was pivotal, um, you know, in the civil rights movement. She was, you know, uh, first of all, she was the youngest, I believe she was the youngest of 20 children. I believe her parents had 20 children, and she was the baby. Now, I don't know. Yeah, that's a lot of kids. That's a lot of babies. You know, my mother is the second of 15. My grandmother has 15 children. And um, Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, despite all of her efforts and all the work that she put into the Civil Rights Movement, um, not enough people know who she is. They don't understand her contribution. And, you know, what saddens me is, you know, she died in poverty while, mm-hmm. you know, these other men, you know, basically led a comfortable life, you know, um, and it's just, it's interesting because... Well, it also, it also says something about the civil rights movement too, which is, you know, we talk mm-hmm. about respectability politics, Right. Right. Um, so part of it part of it, um, the 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 way that leadership was chosen during the civil rights movement was they wanted to present themselves as being quote unquote true Americans. Right. Right. And part mm-hmm. of that was sort of embodying these middle class values. Right. You know? So right. having having men like, you know, Martin Luther King you know, it was very important to have out front. Even men like, you know, uh, Malcolm X, who obviously was, you know, very vocal in his stance against white supremacy, you know, in a way that you know, Martin Luther King wasn't, but was still nonetheless a family man, was still very much a patriarch. You know what I mean? So Exact You know, these it was important for organizations like this to Demonstrate that they were just just as moral, just as upstanding, just as masculine as the white men that they were trying to gain parity with. So, exactly. Um, exactly. Just wanted to point that out. So yeah, most definitely. And you know, we may as well talk about the you know the patriarchy and and you know of uh, the civil rights movement as well as the Black Power movement. And, you know, we're seeing some of that even to this day in the Black Lives Matter movement in which you have these men trying to come in and say, our way is the best way and let us lead. We need you back there cooking chicken, singing songs and giving us money. Right? Right. Exactly. And, and you know what? But that's not brand new either. I mean, that's that's been going on right. since, you know, since Reconstruction, really. Um, yeah. You know, and even before Reconstruction, I mean, in some ways, you know, Sojourner Truth, Ain't I a Woman speech, you know, is a response to that, um, exactly. you know, to patriarchy, you know what I mean? Um, oh, yeah. The notion that, and not just, not just racism, but patriarchy, because, you know, as a Black woman, she's confined by her her race, and then as a woman, she's confined by her sex, and so she's responding to both of those things, like, you know, I can... I can do, I can do all of these strong things. I can be tough and all of these other things. I'm still a woman and nobody treats me that way, you know? And there were, and there were a number of people like, Mar- um, the, the women, uh, and, and we're talking about a few women that we know, right? The few women that history has, has, you know, whose names history has given us, right? Because there were a lot of nameless women who we'll never know about, you know, women who were a part of, you know, the black, uh, the black um, suffrage clubs and the black um, temperance clubs and, and other um, community service clubs that black women belong to, you know, throughout the country, you know, in Harlem and, you know, in Chicago, you know, and in Detroit, you know, Um, there are these histories of, of black women who engaged in, in, um, in community service and political, um, you know, activism, you know, there's this idea that black women are not particularly politically active. That, that's, I don't think that that is true. And I certainly don't think that that is, that has always been true. You know what I mean? Right. Especially right. if you really read history, black women were, you know, were involved in suffrage. They, they wanted the vote. They wanted their men to have the vote. You know what I mean? And, um, right. But there was this there was this there was this struggle that was going on that was based around gender and and how um, people sh- uh, you know the position of of men and women in society, and because a lot of black men were excluded from participation in in the workforce, um, they felt like they had to um, exercise their male authority in some other way and so um you know and and this is and this is why and this is why when anyone says that the black community is matriarchal I laugh at them (laughs) because (laughs) because because it's not it's just simply not true I mean if you look at some of the things that even black men's organizations were putting out about groups like NCNW and other um other organizations you know basically um questioning their their chastity, questioning whether or not they, um, you know, were were loose, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and they didn't know their exactly. place and all of these kinds of things. I mean, they were maligned, not just by white men who were saying, look at these women, they don't know their place. They were being maligned by black men. So exactly. they needed to go home and, and do something else. And raise them babies and cook some chicken. Mm-hmm. That's right and 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 yeah. unfortunately that still happens to this day and you know although you know we're free thinkers and humanists and you know a number of other titles that you know you may or may not call yourself you know we have to shed some of that mindset because even within this community we see patriarchy and and when we start calling it out It's just interesting on, you know, how we're called troublemakers, and that's what's happening even with the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter Movement. You know, you have people out here calling out the patriarchy and calling out the misogyny and the sexism, and, and, you know, and, and have men claiming that they're derailing the movement, and that is, you know, what is it called, mission creep, and so... Yeah. It's just interesting. You know, um, You know, with Fannie Lou Hamer, she gave a talk at the 1964 Democratic National Convention, and that year was held in Atlantic City up there in New Jersey. And they say her talk was very dramatic. I'm going to look for it because I actually want to see it. And once I find it, I will definitely um share it with you guys what they say she gave a very dramatic presentation and she was telling about being jailed and beaten because they almost beat her to death. You know, at one point yeah, that's, that's exactly a- why right. She was disabled, yeah, because she was she was beaten so badly while in prison. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and here's a quote from from her. All of this is on account we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. And because of that, that speech and that presentation, they got two seats. They were, oh, they, were they were, they were seats. So. I mean, guys, you need to go back and read this stuff because, I mean, when I read this and, you know, I'm learning because it's like I know about, you know, a lot of the stuff that we talk about, but when we prepare for the show – we read a lot more, and I find more information. I find myself getting chilled. I'm like, oh, my goodness, why didn't I know about this? And this is why we bring it to you guys, because I know if it excites us, I'm pretty sure it excites a few of you out there, You know, because you didn't know about this information. Or if you knew about it, it was just very little. And that's why we try to expand on it. And we tell you to go out there and, and, and read. And, you know, what's interesting about um, – all of this is that, um, (laughs) you know, they, they gave them two seats and the promise of reform for the 1968 convention. And we all know what happened at the 68 convention. You go look that up, look up the riots and you know, um, you know, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, she got angry and she said, we didn't come here for no seats because all us is tired. All right. So you (laughs) objected the compromise. They rejected right. the compromise, but you know the convention delegates didn't really know um, that when they voted to accept it. And almost all white Mississippi, you know, almost all of the white Mississippi Mississippians walked out. And so mm-hmm. you know, go back and read about that. You know, it's, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Because if you didn't know any better, you would think that that was a mirror image of what's happening today. What happened mm-hmm. down in South you know, when they were getting ready to, you know, cross the bridge and the police officers put on their gas masks. And that's the same Mm -hmm. thing that happened down to Ferguson. You know, you had all of these, you know, the militarization of the police. This is not new. This has been happening for a while. They were ordering tanks and things from, you know, uh, and militarizing the police. I just wanted to, Uh I want to point out something. There's a, there's a, um, there's a report that out that one of the hosts on Fox News actually referred to one of the terrorists in the or, um I actually I don't even like to use that word terrorist because right. it's being applied rather loosely these days but um <laughs> there's a um there's a, a a video going around of a Fox News anchor basically referring to one of the um shooters one of the um, gentleman that, or not gentlemen but one of the guys that took uh, some of those people hostages um, I think at the market at that kosher market in Paris right? Um, they're referring to him as they referred to him rather as African American so there's, yeah. this, there's, this, there's, this, there's this there's this racist need to tie African Americans to violence even when African Americans are not involved um, you know, exactly, so, exactly. That. No, you're, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, um, you know, just being black, you know, on his face, just black period. Well, yeah, you know, of course, of course. But he said African-American, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's on purpose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're selling fear. They are selling right. fear. And, you know, we may be doing a show on fear and how it's being sold across a number of different venues. And we do these shows to kind of open your mind and make you all look at some of these things and just think about it just a little bit. Think about it a little bit harder. Apply those critical thinking skills to everything. Everything. But, you know, what's ironic about, you know, the um, militarization of the police then and now is that now it's federal, (laughs) federally, you know, subsidized. And and, but back then it wasn't. They were just buying, you know, the the gear. But what's interesting, the most interesting thing is the gas mask that you all see them putting on, putting on their faces. That was um, created by a black man. Garrett Morgan, he's also the man that created the stoplight. You know, he created the gas mask. So, anyway, I just thought that would be an interesting tidbit for you guys to know. But, um, you know, here we go with that history again. You know, it's just it's interesting um, how all of this came about. But, guys, we want you to go back. Fannie Lou Hamer, she was way ahead of her time. Um, she did a lot of work. She worked in civil rights for the rest of her life you know, working with, you know, these different um, organizations and, you know, with the different people, and she was pivotal. She raised a lot of money, you know, and, you know, she she tried to run to be a board member for the Sunflower County Anti-Poverty Agency in 1967 because she questioned their authority and the true value of the agency's programs to poor people. And basically, the whites, the local whites, had united, you know, behind her opponent, who was a black man, which was interesting. So, you know, mm. this this is where you know some of the sexism comes in. And you, when you have oh, women yeah. like, yeah, when you have women like this who are outspoken and who quote unquote don't know their place, you know, that's where you see a lot of the sexism and all of, you know the misogyny. You see it coming right. out. I mean, imagine. Imagine in a country where race ra- racism has played such a major role, black men and white men lining up <laughs> to help one black. another defeat a black woman. That tells you something about who she was. Exactly. 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 And that's why I just think it's important that we talk about these things, and, and we want you all free, please, 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 please. And so in 1968... The Democratic Party, um, you know, and by that time they it was required that um, that state parties integrate, right? So they seated, you know, Fannie Cramer as a delegate at his presidential nom- nominating convention in Chicago. And, you know, also the anti-Vietnam War violence in the street overshadowed the seating of the integrated Mississippi delegation. And this is why I'm telling you to go back and read up on the 1968 um, DNC um, convention um, here in Chicago, because it just got totally out of hand. Um, They were shooting people, shooting rubber bullets, shooting regular bullets. It just turned into an all-out um, riots, because, you know, you did have the anti-Vietnam um, demonstrators out there, and it's just, um it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. You need to understand this history and, you know, our part in it, and, you know, it's a shame that, you know, the, the violence overshadowed the integration, but that's why we're bringing it up today. Because that's why we tell you, you can't necessarily depend on everything in the news. I mean, America has a lot of propaganda in the news. And there are some issues that are, you know, purposefully overlooked. I'll give you one example, the NAACP bombing. You know how ironic that we're talking about this today. But, you know, the bombing at the NAACP Center up there in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You, it was not on, you know, on any major news stations. It was not being um, televised or talked about with the major news media. You know, it was through social media that we were spreading and, you know, and informing everybody as to what happened. And they were even reluctant to call it domestic terrorism. And finally, right. they put out a of this white guy. And so it's just interesting, and it goes back to what I said last week and this week about patterns, because you've got to remember, go back to the same time period during the, you know, that phase of the Civil Rights Movement Black Power Movement, they were bombing churches, they were bombing, um, you know, um, our you know, NAACP centers, and just a number of things. It's happening again, as a matter of fact, you know, if you want to know the truth. That wasn't the only NAACP building that was bombed in in churches. I mean, have you all not been paying attention over the past several years? You've had people firebombing churches, you know, desecrating churches and, you know, and, and places of business for blacks. It just doesn't get a lot of media and I'm like, you know, right. Raina, should we start talking about that more when I see these stories? Because I read them. I'll post one every once in a while. But I think, so much I think we have to. Yeah, yeah. I think we have to. Yeah. We have to. Yeah. Because, so because start- the subject of domestic terrorism is not one that gets brought up a lot, but you know the the thing about it is is like we like to talk about terrorism we love to talk about terrorism and and nowadays muslim e- equals terrorist in this country you know what i mean right. but the truth is is that for americans in general but black americans in particular the, the you're more likely to be targeted by a domestic terrorist and i don't mean a sleeper cell i don't mean someone who you know may have grown up you know, going to mosque, I mean someone who went to the church down the street from you. You know right. what I mean? That's what I mean. Exactly. And your great-grandma may have been his great-grandma's or his great-great-grandma's, you know, nanny or some shit like that. You know, you got to think about these things. Um, or not nanny, but nanny. Um, oh, Lord. <laughs> I'm not listening to you. <laughs> Oh, well, you know, you know anyway. You
2: gotta so have, just, fun, gotta listen,
1: yeah. have fun though. Gotta let you have fun. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I we want you to look this up. Um, we're gonna start posting more about domestic terrorism and, you know, but then also we want you all to understand also that in, 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 in certain cases, they like to categorize black people as domestic terrorists. That's why when they start bringing up this non-existent black on black crime, why I'm sitting here and I'm looking at you guys and I'm like, and we say it on the show, I'm like, are you guys paying attention to what they're doing? They're trying to change the narrative, and if you know, in in many, in many, racist minds, you know, black people are terrorists. We are prone to violence. We are all these things in right in a racist mind, and it, unfortunately, in some of you know some of our allies and you know <laughs> minds, some liberal minds, uh, you know, that's a hard conversation that we're going to have to have. We're going to have to have that conversation. It is not easy. And it's not comfortable. You know, that's the reason why we haven't had certain shows because, you know, I know it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to talk about some of this stuff. And and it's just, yeah, you know, and it takes a lot of research, a lot of research. So, um, you know, go and look up Fannie Lou Hamer. She started um, a pig bank. And so I know you're saying, what in the world is a pig bank? Basically, it was a program to help people in the community improve their diets, okay? And so um, what she did was she bought 35 um, female pigs, gilts, and she bought five boars, which are the male pigs, and then basically the pregnant pigs were loaned to local families, and they would keep the pigs that were produced and return the mama pig the mama pig to the bank. And so, um, you know, they Yeah, yeah, interesting, isn't it? And it was about three hundred families that benefited from that particular program. And so right. um, you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I was gonna say there's there were similar there were similar programs, um, though not so <laughs> pig banks, but black <laughs> women um <laughs> black women, you know, throughout the country organized things like um, you know, like things for like baby food and tampers and co ops and you know what I mean, all different kinds of things to help women um who needed assistance, you know, as single mothers or you know, just you know, people who had fallen on hard times, you know. And of course we talk about the Panthers. The Panthers with the um, you know, breakfast, you know, school breakfast and um, and not just about the, you know, triage and, you know, all of those other things. So, um, and a lot of that was organized by black women, and even though exactly. black, black, pan, black the, the Panthers were led primarily by men. A lot of these sort of efforts were headed by women. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, she also established the Freedom Farm. And so it had a similar goal of providing food and, and some economic independence to local people. This is why we say all politics is local, you know, or are local. And and if you want to help somebody, start with the people in your neighborhood. Start at home. You got all these people talking about, I want to go to Africa. Well, you know, what about little Jimmy up the street? You see him going to school every day and you see his shoes are talking to you because the soul is about ready to fall off. Why can't you help him? Why is that such a hard thing to do? We don't know what little Jimmy is going through when he goes home. We don't know if little Jimmy is being fed. We don't know if little Jimmy is, you know, being nurtured. We don't know what's happening with him. So, you know, if you want, you know you can always go to the local schools and, you know, give donations, you know, school supplies for them to give to the, you know, to, to the children that are disadvantaged. Um, I know we adopted a family last year and, you know, um, we've done a lot with them and, you know, we plan on doing more with them this year. You know, so, you know, we're starting locally. We're starting locally. And... You know, if people don't know who or what you're doing locally, I mean, how do you expect other people in other places to respect what you're doing? You got to start at home. And But that's just me. What do I know? But anyway, with Fannie Lou Hamer, um, you know, she did a lot of work in anti-poverty campaigns and efforts, um, you know, like Head Start, you know, because, you know, she saw the link between education, jobs, and political influence. So, please, 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 please go back and, and take a look. You know, in 1970, she filed a lawsuit um, against Sunflower County Schools because they were not properly desegregating. You know, she, she joined up with, you know, the feminists, the feminist activists, and they founded the National Women's Political Caucus. Go and look at, look, go get some information on these women. You know, and and it was a multicultural effort. You know, she wanted to make sure that they had diversity. So, you know, she said basically a white mother is no different than a black mother. And that's true. A mother is a mother. She said the only thing is they haven't had as many problems, but we cry the same tears. (laughs) All right now. Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, guys, go back out and um, look this up. Um, you know, um, right before she passed away, um, you know, she was sick. You know, she had polio as a child, and she had been sterilized without her knowledge. That's why she never had any children. And, you know, that was in 1961 when they sterilized her. And, wow, you know, just, um, guys, go back, and we need to acknowledge you know, these people. It's so heartbreaking to, to, to hear, to, when you really get into some of the stories of these women, you know, who are these women activists, but not just the women activists, but just women and black women in general, and just how, how they were treated by society, you know, to be, you know, imagine being sterilized without your consent. You know what I mean? That is, exactly. I mean, there was a time, though, there was a time, though, that there were black and white people. Who thought that that was cool? I hear that now, actually. Right. You know what I mean? Right. I actually, there was a man, there was a man in um a, one of the humanist groups I'm in the other day who came in and said that he believes that some people should be sterilized if they can't afford children. Not, not if they're able to emotionally, you know, and, and protect and, and care for a child, but just based on finances, you know? Right. And um, as though, As though that somehow is a is a measure of one's character, you know. We live in a world right now where, um, you know, there people people aren't able to earn a living wage many many times, but but people are using wealth as as sort of the the yardstick, you know exactly exactly, And 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 that's really unfortunate. Right. As though right. as though we turn on the television and can't see and can't see the um <laughs> can't see how how dysfunctional affluent children are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh yeah, affluenza. These, yeah, affluenza. You know, or who was the what was that, the guy who's like um, heir to the Max Factor fortune? Who was down oh, the, in, in Mexico God. raping women? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, not Revlon, Max Factor, yeah. Yeah, Max Factor guy. Yeah, he was down there doing some mess, and Revlon guy said he could smell when black people are in the room. So anyway, right. um, it's just interesting. But, yeah, they went through a lot. I mean, she had a few nervous breakdowns. You know, she I'm had sure. breast cancer. Yeah, she had breast cancer, and, you know, um, it's just it's a lot, and she was, dealing with, and, you know, she died, you know, March fourteenth, 1977, of heart failure, and that was brought on by cancer, diabetes, and hypertension, you know, and they said um, hundreds of people attended her funeral, and Andrew Young, who was then the ambassador um, to the United Nations, gave her eulogy, saying none of us would be where we are now had she not been there then. How about that? You know, yeah. and they wouldn't. Without Ella Baker, without Fannie Lou Hamer, there would not have been a Martin Luther King Jr. Because what a lot of people don't realize is that Ella Baker had to persuade Martin Luther King to be a part of the movement. Because he didn't want to do it. He didn't want that. They had to talk him into doing it. And, you know, Ella Baker was also one of the founders of the SCLC, you know. But anyway, um, you know, go look this up. Look this up. Um, In 1993, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. You know, and we don't hear anything about that. But, you know, what I want to say to her and her family is that she is remembered and she's loved and appreciated for everything that she did. You know, and if nothing else, I just hope that this motivates you guys to understand and to know that you can play a role, you know. And even if it's just a small local role, that's fine, you know take some time out, do something for someone else. I mean, if you don't have the time to volunteer and do these things, you know, if you have a few extra dollars, you know, you know, you know this one particular family, you know, on the block is having some financial problems or whatever, you know, send an anonymous card, you know, just put it in their mailbox depending on the situation. You know, I mean, there are different extenuating circumstances, but you know, go buy a bag of groceries and leave it on their porch something like that, help reach out to, you know, the domestic violence shelters. You know, um, you have the different missions and, you know, things like that. Help send them things, you know, they need basic stuff that people forget and take for, you know, take for granted. They need things like soap, toothpaste, toothbrushes, towels, Mm -hmm. come on. Yeah. So I think we can all play a role, you know, if, you know, uh, you know, let's go to the dollar store, you can get a lot of stuff for 20 bucks at the dollar store. And if you happen to see someone, you know, someone that's homeless and, you know, go pick up a bag of stuff and give it to them. That's what I used to do. Um, when I called myself going back to church, you know, several years ago. And I, when I got to the point that I didn't want to put my money in the church, I would go and take the money that I would normally put in as tithes and offering, and I would go and buy groceries and buy, you know, um, hygiene products and things like that and, you know, drive around. And when I saw someone who I thought was in need, I would stop and give them a bag. Right. And and that was what I was doing, you know. So, you know, guys, it's, it's, it's a lot for you to do. Um, it's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, you know, we just feel that it's important that you guys understand what's happening out here and, you know, how, you know, a lot of women are, you know, being co-opted and written out of history and it's not right because even to this day, if it wasn't for our initiating the majority of these movements and us funding the greater majority of it and in keeping these movements alive... They they would deflate, you know. So um, it's important. Don't don't take the women out here for granted. It's just it's important for you all to understand that. But you know, again, even with the local communities and in many of our you know neighborhoods, you know, you have a lot of black women serving as you know the source you know, the source for mobilizing people, the source for the capital, and, and, and all of this. And if the women weren't there doing these things, you know, these movements wouldn't go anywhere, or, if, or they would be going a lot slower, you know, not having as much of an impact on, you know, the communities. And the same thing in the church, you know, the black, black women are basically the backbone of the black church. And this is why, you know, we tell them, take your agency back. You know, you can control and and stop a lot of that nonsense once you start leaving your wallets and your pocketbooks and your checkbooks at home. (laughs) Right. What were you about to say, Raina? No, nothing, nothing. Absolutely nothing. I was just laughing. (laughs) Yeah, leave them at home. Yeah, you know. And the interesting thing is, um, like I was talking earlier about Dorothy Height and Anna Hedgman, basically, like I said, they got into it with, you know, Bayard Rustin, and basically he told them, we have Mahalia Jackson, you know, and, you know, basically he felt that Mahalia Jackson's presence, you know, at the march was, you know, the presence as a black woman that could represent thousands of black women who were actively, you know, part of the struggle. And so it's just, you know, she was, you know, a wonderful gospel singer. Um, she was able to use her voice to, you know, to counter racism, to galvanize, you know, the people. And, but she did not want to be a speaker. She didn't, she was not interested as being a speaker for civil rights. Um, so it's just interesting, um, you know, what they were trying to do in their efforts to pacify, you know, women. And and it's just this outrageous. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about this so-called march that they had um, several months ago in D.C. And you had people from the Black Lives Matter um, protest movement. They hopped the stage because they were told that they would be able to speak and that they would have, you know, a seat and in, in a platform given, you know, basically an, an opportunity to be on that particular platform. And they were lied to. They were pushed to the back. And, you know, we had Reverend Al Sharpton up there, you know, basically trying to co-opt that movement. And I have so many issues because when, you know, the riots or, yeah, the riots first broke out in Ferguson, him and Jesse Jackson went down there and was telling people to go home and pray, and then turned around and asked people for contributions. And you know, you have a lot of these old civil rights vanguard activists. They they want to be relevant so badly that you know they rush to be in front of a microphone. They rush to take charge, and they don't necessarily you know understand a lot of what's happening. Many of them are disconnected to your average, you know, person, man or woman, but yet they want to lead somebody. And, you know, um, in the case of, you know, Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, I mean, they're both multimillionaires. So, you know, you know, the black elitist class, uh, political class, guys, we need to go back and we need to study this and we need to make sure that we don't allow them to, you know, co-opt and derail, you know, what these millennialists are putting together. Because, again, when they said go home and pray, you know, and now they're trying to, you know, push themselves to the forefront of this, you know, that's what they're going to do eventually is tell everybody to go home and pray. And they're trying to, you know, you know, deflate, you know, what's what's a really powerful movement. And see, what a lot of people don't seem to understand is that this has not even really turned into a full-fledged movement yet, and and, and but it's growing. And they're getting counseling, and they're trying to put together economic plans, and, you know, um, I just see it as growing. And, you know, we're not yet a full-fledged new phase of the civil rights movement, but it's growing that way. And we don't need people like that over here trying to deflate this, because, you know, at the end of the day, they get to go home to their, you know, mansions or mansions or what have you, and, you know, they get to have their personal chefs. They get to have all of these luxuries. They get to, you know, live a life of opulence, while everybody else, you know, we're pretty much, to a certain degree, peasants. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're just trying to bring, you know, some some light to this issue. But, you know, again, you know, we want to talk about, you know, these women, you know, um, let's, you know, Ella Baker, or no, let's start with Septima Clark. Even though we didn't put her name there um, on the, the body, it's important that you all understand, you know, who these people are and their role. In, you know in, in the movement and so with September Clark you know basically um, she was an educator and she was a highly highly gifted educator and she developed what was called the citizenship school and so during the 50s and the 60s you know um, a lot of blacks they went through or African Americans they went through the citizenship school classes and you know that's how they taught them how to read and write And in this way, they could pass the literacy test that was, you know, required by southern states, again, the southern states, to register to vote. And I've seen some of these tests. Many of us today would flunk these tests that they were given. Yeah, I mean, it was people, white people back then would have flunked them. (laughs) They they didn't have to take them. But, yeah, I mean, I think um, actually they showed a clip. I haven't seen Selma yet. I've heard Selma yeah. is amazing, so I got to go see yes. it. But, um, but um, there's a scene where um, Oprah's character is going to register to vote, and she completed her citizenship test. And the um, white, uh, you know, uh, poll poll person, right, the re- the registrar, right, he is mm-hmm. um, really unhappy that she has <laughs> passed. The test. So he decides to administer some of his own questions. So he proceeds to ask her how many sitting judges they have in the county. And she's mm-hmm. able to tell, tell him that there are 67. Then he asks her to name them all. Mm-hmm. That's right. Knowing, knowing damn well that she's not going to know all their names. And knowing damn well, he don't know any of their names <laughs> more than that's likely. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right, right. It's just, it's, that's funny. You know, um, it's, you know, they would ask how many bubbles are in a bar of soap. Bigger mm-hmm. things like that. But um, we want you to go back. Go back and and understand, because, I mean, what a lot of people don't realize is that we still have people in our community who are illiterate. We have, you know, people that are functionally illiterate. There is a role for everyone. There is something for everyone to do. And that's, that's, that's what we're trying to get people to understand. But we want you to know the history, because knowing this history, it empowers you. It empowers you. As a matter of fact, it emboldens you. So um, because that way, you know, when you sit there and you have a conversation with someone, you can start pulling out these facts and and stand there sure-footed, knowing that, you know, you got the right information. So we just want you to go. We want you to study. Look up Tima Clark, S-E-P-T-I-M-A Clark, and she did this for about 40 years. And, you know, um, she was a teacher, a gifted teacher and civil rights activist, and she designed the citizenship schools. And actually, to be honest with you, I feel that that is something that needs to be brought back. And not necessarily called the citizenship schools, but we need to have, you know, education within our own communities telling people about, like, the information that we're doing here on the show. This is why we do this show, and this is why I leave the archives up. I leave them up there so that you can go back and you can listen to this and you can understand, you know, and, and kind of get, you know, better understanding, a better position, um, you know, um, um, uh intellectually as to, you know, what happened and why certain parts were left out of history, why they don't teach you all these things. And even when you go to college and you, you know, you pay for some of these classes and you take the classes, you're still only learning a microcosm of this information. And even though, you know, we're only telling you little parts here and there, you know, we're telling you to research it. The information is out there. You know, that's why we tell you the names of different books. And and things that you can read, you know, um, sometimes I post Wikipedia pages. I want you to go to the bottom and look at the references. Click on those links, you know, because Wikipedia Mm -hmm. is just little snapshots of different pages. Go down to the bibliography and click on those links and read. That is what we want you to do. But I think we should, you know, have some of these um, schools and we need to bring them back, and you know educating people as well as you know um i think we need schools um out here that will teach that but also about passive resistance especially since we're out here we're protesting more you see these grassroots and and mass movements popping up and we can't let this you know black lives matter movement die we cannot allow that to happen we have to keep on yeah it's cold outside it's cold as hell like that But, you know, my whole thing is is that I'm willing to buy, you know, a couple of Gore-Tex jackets for people out there so that you can go on March. You know, I can't do it. My health is fucked, okay? So, I mean, I'm just, you know, going to be honest with you, but I do send money. I do donate, you know, supplies and things of that nature. You know, they tell me they need it. I'll give it to them. You want some Gore-Tex? Here, there you go. You want some Carhartt? Here you go. There you go. What else do you need? you all need, you know, uh, you know, a couple of um, cases of water here? That is not an issue for me. You know, I would support you any way possible. As a matter of fact, um, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to donate some money to the jail fund for the people that are being jailed around the country for their protesting. I've given some money, but I'm going to give a, sus- a substantial um, amount in a couple of weeks. So... You know, I think I'm probably going to donate about $250. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Why not? Why not? Mm -hmm. Why not? You know, they need it. They need the help. So, guys, you know, go and look up Septima Clark. Look up, um, you know, her work in the citizenship schools and think about, you know, what you can do in your community to help those around you, especially with some of these protesters. They're young people. They are young people. They need to be motivated. They need to be educated on things like, you know, the local laws, you know, so that they'll understand you need to, you know, maybe we need to explain to them about what Stingray boxes are and what they do. And for those that aren't familiar with that type of technology, with Stingray um, technology, they're able to basically intercept your cell phone signals so instead of it going to the cell phone tower it's going to the stingray and they're able to you know intercept your calls and listen in they're able to intercept your text messages all of that Mm -hmm. so you know, it's, it's important for you all to understand, you know, what's happening out here. And that's why when I was talking about, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and I'll bring it up again today, I was talking about the civil rights movement, the black power movement, and how that, um, during that time era, that they started diagnosing more black people, particularly black men, with schizophrenia. And that's why I was right. talking about the, the protest psychosis. I just got it this week, so I'm going to read it. But, you know, some of the same things are happening now because, again, you have people out here, you know, uh, saying, you know, why aren't you happy? You know, um, they had the pseudoscience back when the slaves were trying to run away. It was called drapetomania. That's why on my profile, on my other profile, it says I'm the queen of drapetomania, you know, runaway mm-hmm. slaves, right? And, um you know, they had the protest psychosis, and, you know, now they're trying to say that protesting is low-level domestic terrorism. There is a pattern here that I'm trying to get you all to understand, and it's the same tricks, and they just, it's the same tricks over and over. This, you know, I don't know what to say, you know, some of this, Some days I just sit there and I look at this and and I feel as though this is one of our weak points, whereas um, when we don't understand history, this is why a lot of these tricks are able to be used over and over, you know, and so, again, go out, read up on these wonderful people, you know, um,
0: she, this
1: was a wonderful woman absolutely wonderful wonderful woman and you know go and look at her her history and and you know her legacy is important but um let's talk let's talk about Ella Baker for a little while Raina. okay or did you have more to add about Fannie Lou or Septima I'm sorry I, I did not actually um you you pretty much hit the nail on the head. I mean, we can't cover everything. Right. You know, it's just not possible. Right. It's not possible. mm Not at all. You know, so, you know, you have people like Ella Baker, and it's a lot of unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. Even though and look that up, unsung heroes of the civil rights movement Unsung women of the civil rights movement, you'll find a lot of information, um, you know, and a lot of that information, you know, was left out and it's just interesting because with the women that were part of the civil rights movement, they were fighting discrimination on two fronts, race and sex, and Mm -hmm. unfortunately, same issue today. Yeah, it is. It is. So... Yeah, you know, it's just, it's really interesting. Um, But yeah, 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 you know, um, and we're not saying not to honor, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or or anyone of that nature. We're not saying that, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, Asa Philip Randolph, Beard Rustin, you know, Andrew Young, Medgar Evers, you know, you got a number of people out here. But again, without many of these women there would not have been any of those men. And, you know, again, we're trying to make sure that that does not happen, you know, today. We have Mm -hmm. to make sure that that is not allowed to happen. So, um, you know, with Ella Baker, with her in particular, um, she once said, this may only be a dream of mine, but I think it can be made real. How about that? Dream big. They say, you know, if your dream isn't big enough to scare you, then it's not big enough, right? Right. So, yeah. So, you know, again, um, Ella Baker, she was pivotal. Um, She, you know, was born 1903, December 13th, 1903 in Norfolk, Virginia, and apparently she grew up in North Carolina. And so they say she had a sense of social justice early on in her life. And, you know what yeah they said that I was reading mm-hmm. I was reading somewhere where they were talking about her mother and how she was greatly influenced by her mother and the um black Baptist women um who worked in in the community where she grew up, and they were talking about how um even though you know the church was very patriarchal, that these women had a um you know there was a there was a couple different schools of thought right, within the church, right, about the position of women. And a lot of black women kind of came out of the school of thought that women had just as much of a a role and responsibility in expanding the kingdom of God as men. And so Ella's mother came out of that. And she was a missionary, but she also was very much focused on um, many issues related to social justice. So that's where... um, sort of ella got this notion that women you know could be instrumental exactly and they could be and they are you know it's unfortunate but many of them don't understand their value you know and that's because again you know especially within you know the church in particular the black church in in many cases you know most churches you know um the women are taught to be subservient to men and that they are not supposed to teach or lead or preach that, you know, is, is, that's the man's job. And, and unfortunately, a lot of that is taught to this day, but you did have a contingent of women who were um, fighting against that and that didn't believe in that. And what's interesting is, you know, over the past several years, Raina well, and I... Well, not just women, we, the men, too. That's what I was saying, too. But I right. hear you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's a contingent of people, and I'm looking at my books now. I got a lot of books, y'all. And it was one book in particular, and it was talking about women um, in a Baptist church and how they were fighting, and basically they wanted their equal rights. They wanted to be able to teach and to lead and goodness i can't find a book but when i find it i'll post it on my wall because i'm not trying to have all this stuff all over the floor but um i'm looking for it. you remember the name of that book Raina? nope oh <laughs> i, I oh, just no. i just picked one up oh righteous discon- there it is righteous okay. discon- yeah i haven't heard of that one but um i did pick up one um and when I remember the name, I'll post it in the um, on the Facebook page. But I was reading that because I, you know, I wanted to learn more about um, black women in, um, in their activism. You know what I mean? And, um, right. you know, a lot of black women, you know, I mean, you know, there's this notion that black people just have, like, this really, like, sort of, servile relationship to church and that they don't really think and they're not questioning and they don't possess the ability to think logically or critically. And that's not true. I think there's always been struggles within the church um, over various issues. You know what I mean? Right. And, you know, there's always been people within the church who, you know, they'd be like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe not, you know, preaching's not my thing, or maybe preaching's not the thing for women to do, but there's plenty of other things we can do. You know what I mean? So, you know, I mean, it's, it's not perfect, but, I mean, nothing is. You know what I mean? And uh, exactly. if we're, if we're going to dismiss people and their activism just because it's not perfect, then, you know, that's not cool. But, I mean, I think we can it, still be critical even with that. You know what I mean? So. Exactly. It's going to be critical. We, we can call. still we can still say they failed in these areas. You know. Exactly. So. Exactly. We have a call. Let's bring them on the line. Area code six six one. May we ask who's calling?
2: Hey, how's it going? This is Red Ninja. Hey, Red.
1: Hey, hey how are
2: you? I'm great. How are you?
1: Good, good, good. Thanks for calling in. We appreciate it. Happy New Year, dear.
2: Happy New Year to you, too,
1: ladies. (laughs) So, yeah, you see, we're talking about Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and and kind of tying this to the Black Lives Matter because, you know, again, it's like putting up a mirror. What's happening now is the same thing that was happening then, you know, you had – you know, these towns and these cities that were predominantly black, but they were white controlled. And and it's just interesting, you know, how history is repeating itself. That's why I say it's, it's, it's patterns. And this is what we need people to understand and to pay attention to um, as far as, you know, what's happening here. Um, it, it's just interesting because Ella Baker um, also was important with SNCC, you know, and she helped, you know, um, form this, you know the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee with Diane Nash, and um, basically, you know, they were guiding the students. If there had not been any Ella Baker or or Diane Nash or SNCC, we never would have had Rosa Parks. We never would have had right. Stokely Carmichael. We never would have had Julian Bond. Ba- I'm sorry, Julian Bond or Bob Moses. And they they include Diane Nash because she was a student as well. So Ella was teaching her. But Diane was the one that stepped up and said, you know, we want to roll at the table because, unfortunately, you had a lot of people in the civil rights movement and the black power movement that were trying to, you know, um, push the, the young folk away. and They were like, no, this is our lives. We, You know, this affects us, too. And we're start, we see this happening now. And I'm like, you know, you, you just need to know when it's time for you to pull back and let these young people do what they need to do. And and we're here. We're supposed to be guiding them. We're supposed to be helping them. This is about their future. And, I mean, you know, we're still relatively young. You know, we have some young people that are part of the secular community. Yeah, and I was getting ready to say, Kim. I was like, I know, getting ready I to say, like, <laughs> God damn. Now, I'm talking, well, how, I'm you know talking about people. Uh, talking about people like me, you know, it's like this, I'm middle-aged, you know, I'm still kind of considered young by some people, I guess. You are but, young, but, you are young. Yeah, yeah, but um, my thing is, is that, you know, I'm at a certain position in life, whereas, you know, I can I can do a lot more to help people. Um, with what you know, with these types of things, as far as like supplies and finances and the education and all of that, you know, I'm more than willing. That's never been an issue. Um, but yeah, I want to see these young people develop. You know, this movement, but I want us to help keep them focused. You know, talking about policies and and talking about you know, and oh, there's a lawsuit that was filed. I forgot where this lawsuit was filed. It was in Texas somewhere. And the Latinos in that area filed a lawsuit against the city or the state and saying that, you know, how they re or gerrymandered, you know, the population, that it diluted the the Latino vote. That needs to be happening across this country. Not only with Latinos, but with, you know, African-Americans too, because, you know, the way they redraw these district lines, they're doing it on purpose to dilute the black vote and the Latino vote. We need to be paying attention, and this is another, you know, component to this equation that we need to take into consideration. Start filing these lawsuits against, you know, against, you know, these politicians. But we have to be aware of what's happening, and that's why I say we need to re-implement these different schools in which we teach these people, and we have people coming in teaching about passive, you know, resistance and and, and different things, you know, the different types of techniques to protest, different things that can happen, you know, um, tell them about the different laws. You know, we need to create incubators. Yeah, and, and that's, the, one
2: the of the things is that, like, I never understood, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, um, no, go ahead. but one of the things I, I never really understood is why talking about um, these issues of the power struggle that's been going on within, let's say, the black community in regards to their rights, why these kinds of things are actually ignored by and large, by the secular movement, you know, and being called, having things called mission drift and things of this nature, um, I think that this is an outrageous thing to say because of the fact that so many of our lives revolve around understanding what our situation actually is in regards to our civil rights. And if, 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 if a lot of the secular communities want to know why they don't have, like, a lot of black women in them, it's because these same black women are far too focused, and black men are far too focused on other things besides being angry at religion, to right. have to worry about trivial they're matters. They're focused
1: on preserving their lives. That's what they're exactly. focused yeah.
2: You know, We're trying to actually save people's lives out here. We can't be worried about having to sue a school because they got a Bible class or things right, of that right. nature. That's- we can't be focused on these very trivial things when you're trying to put food on the table. And I've never understood why, secu- why so many secular people will protest the focus on trying to actually change our communities and labeling people social justice warriors. When they're not, when the whole point about being a free thinker is about being about social justice and doing the things that the churches aren't actually willing to do. And if the if the nonbelievers are not willing to do them, and if the nonbelievers are not willing to act in the best interests of our nation, then the churches will find a way to do that, and they're going exactly. to sit there angry when the church wins that battle because the church, exactly. the church is actually focused, and the black church especially, the black church is focused on trying to improve their community.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: As, as much it, as I, it, we, we hate to say it.
1: Right exactly you know and and you know the interesting thing is is that when you know when the riots or the issues first broke out in ferguson um you know i was challenging them i'm like where are you you know what are you saying and and then a few of them you know i have to give credit when it's due you know even as minuscule as it is but they made these statements um, about, you know, um, racism and how it's wrong, and all you had to do is go and look in the comments section, and you would see the vitriol and just, you know, just nonsense. And since then, they have not made any other statements, to my knowledge, about Black Lives Mattering, but everybody wants us to say, just sweet Charlie, you know? And it's just it's interesting, you know, looking at it, and that's one of the things that I am looking at, and I know that Raina and Dr. Hutchinson and Dr. Penn and Donald and Jen and a number of us, we're looking at this, we're looking at social justice, we're looking at these grassroots and mass movements, and, you know, we we were around before this started, and I've been telling you guys this was going to happen. I mean, it was like, you know, you could see it coming. You know, if you can look beyond yourself and your own nose, you could have seen this coming. And I've been saying it for the past few years. But we're trying to find our place in, 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 in these movements and create our our space and create our safe space in which we can have people from the secular community come out and, and be a part of this. As a matter of fact, Raina, you know, maybe we should um, try to have um, a panel about passive resistance i think I think that is needed anyway, so um, anyway, getting back on that, yeah, it's just really interesting because it's like you know you not only have you know some white secularists out here but also some black secularists um talking about social justice warriors and 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 trying to downplay social justice or redefine it to fit, you know, their bullshit, but um, right. and, and really want to be, you know, um, part of the social justice movement per se, and mainly, I believe, most of it's because it makes their, you know, mainstream white, you know, um, sponsors uncomfortable. Because, again, they've yeah. already made it clear that this is mission creep, mission drift, and that they really don't want to touch it. But you still have a lot of people that are out here angry because we refuse to change our stance on this particular narrative. And they want us to shut up about it, and they want us – you know, you have people that don't even want us to be a part of this movement because they right. feel and as if, like, though –
2: they want you to, and, and they want you to be quiet until it affects them.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, the interesting thing about it is that, you know, this is not going away. Um, we're not on the rah-rah atheist team. We are not the spirit club or the spirit team or the, <laughs> the pom-pom squad or the cheerleaders for the atheist community. You know, um, you all, you know, take your damn hip-hop dancing and do whatever you want to do over there on the sidelines, you know, but that's not... You know what we're doing over here we're trying to affect positive change that you know impacts everybody black white yellow red everybody because again we are inclusive we understand that many of these issues do affect you know in particular poverty-stricken white people as well even though many of them you know vote against their own interests but it affects them as well but Right. It's just it's time for us to talk about more than just atheism and that's why, you know, earlier when I gave that quote when I said that um you know, and this is from Sana Shilash, she said, It's so important to keep movements anchored in a purpose that we can focus upon, not a person or organization. And unfortunately, in the second community, you have, you know, these, these, you know, bigger than life people like Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris. And because of the way that we have been trained or indoctrinated in this country, basically, you know, um, if a white person says it or a white person um, or somebody from the establishment if they, you know, anoint or appoint someone, then we feel that that person is legitimate. And that's not always the case. And and, and this is what, you know, we have to talk about, but it needs to be focused on issues, centered in issues. We need to be focused on that, not focused on a particular person and not focused on a particular organization. And when you see the, you know, the scuttlebutt, the chatter in the atheist community, what do you see? oh, well, Dawkins said or Hitchens said or we're going to go over here to this particular organization's, you know, conference when, you know, they're not putting forth any real efforts to to improve, you know, society as a whole. And that's why I point out to people about the libertarian and the conservative Republican stronghold in this community. But the thing is, is that, you know, um, we have to get beyond that. And we have to find our place because, you know, I don't know about anybody else, but I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And, and, you know, whether some of these, you know, black secularists admit it or not, these same issues impact all of us in one way or another. If it doesn't impact me directly, it impacts my nieces and my nephews and their children. It impacts my yeah. cousins, it impacts, you know, my nieces and nephews themselves, you know. Um, and, and so it's just, it's important. And that's why I feel this urgency and this need to put this information out here, this urgency and this need to, you know, again, you know, tell these young folks how proud of them I am. I never thought I would see this in my lifetime. And I, I see it, I'm able to be a part of it, and I'm proud. And and it's just so much that, you know, we can do as individuals. But, again, you know, going back to, you know, Ella Baker and, you know, um, Fannie Lou and Hamer and, you know, the three founders of Black Lives Matter, that's Alicia Garza, Patrice Colors, and Opal Tometi, you know, especially those three women right there. We need to support them. We need to encourage them. Um, and, and especially we also need to protect them to a certain degree. And, and and what I mean by that is, again, when I see people like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, you know, almost getting whiplash trying to run to these cities and be the first ones in front of the camera, you know, um, it, it makes me extremely uncomfortable. Extremely uncomfortable. Right. But, you know, again, well, we want you to look up, you know, um, Ella Baker. You know, she was part of the Harlem Renaissance. You know, and, and they had a major influence on her thoughts and her teachings. And you know, she she was definitely an advocate for you know local activism, local action. You know, and that is how we're going to be able to continue you know, these movements and, and cultivate this into a new phase of the civil rights movement, we need to get active locally. You need to support your local organizations. You need to support these young people that are out here and encourage them and motivate them, you know. And, I mean, you know, this woman worked with everyone. And in, in her influence and her knowledge and in Fannie Lou um, Hamer's influence and knowledge you know they were very gifted they some of their their techniques we're implementing today and so that's why it's important for us to go back and and look this information up and understand who they are and and you know one of Ella Baker's quotes is strong people don't need strong leaders again strong people don't need strong leaders and and that's why she was saying about how we need to have group You know, centered leadership, but not a leadership. You know, a leader, and then everybody follows that person's lead because again, like they said, it's about empowering people individually.
2: Exactly, they can be strong collectively. Right, right. And then what what happens is like if that person goes away, then the movement goes away.
1: Right. Exactly, exactly. And that's why, you know, when we were talking earlier about, you know, MLK, when he died and how, you know, everything just kind of fell apart, you know, because, you know, I feel then and now that the Poor People's Campaign still needs to go forward. And with the Poor People's Campaign, that was all inclusive. And that's why I say we need to reactivate some of these, you know, older campaigns, you know, like Dust them all, read about them, study them. We need to have these local groups that teach, you know, about what, you know, you can and cannot do in a protest, um, you know, you know, again, active and passive um, resistance, all of this, and educating people on the laws and the policies. And it's just it's important. It's important. And I'll give you all another quote from her. She said, you didn't see me on television. You didn't see news stories about me. The kind of role that I tried to play was to pick up pieces or put together pieces out of which I hoped organization might come. I hope you all got that. I'll repeat it. You didn't see me on television. You didn't see news stories about me. The kind of role that I tried to play was to pick up pieces or put together pieces out of which I hoped organization might come. So it's important. You need these people who are in the background helping. You know, like, you know, yeah, you know, some of my heroes, Asa Philip Randolph. You know, um, Bayard Rustin. I love me some Hubert Henry Harrison. Everybody knows that's my guy right there. But um, you know, we need to talk about, especially Asa Philip Randolph and you know the unions and the organization behind them and why it's important now. And why we need to talk about these things. But um, look at all of this. Look at all of this. Go back. As a matter of fact, Ella Baker was the first staff member hired for the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, You know, Martin Luther King, Bayard Rustin, Fannie Lou, Ella, all of them, you know, helped put all of that together and to start these different organizations. And you know, we feel that it will definitely be a service to you guys to know this information and to continue, you know, um, their legacy and, and, and to act upon, you know, what happened. And, and basically, you know, we explained to you, as we told you, that W.E.B. Du Bois died the evening after the Civil Rights March, you know, the March on Washington. So he died that evening, that evening, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, he felt some joy seeing that his writings and his influence, you know, had had um, put this urgency in people and it influenced, you know, people all across this country and other countries to get out and to galvanize them to act. And that's why, you know, I've said on this show then and now that people in other countries, you know, especially people of color in other countries, they're, they're looking at us and look what this black lives matter has has created you got people over in brazil you got people over in korea you know people in 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 great britain you know in in the netherlands all around the world you know they're 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 marching with and for us you know we're giving we're energizing and motivating them they're fighting for their rights as well i posted an article earlier this week on from npr And an African was, you know, being interviewed, and I don't remember quite everything, so I apologize. I'll try to find it again and repost it. But he was saying, you know, why are all these missionaries and evangelists coming to Africa when they're, you know, from America, and when they should just be in America helping? And he was like, you know, look at what's happening over in Ferguson. And he was telling them to go back to their own country and help. And he was saying, needs a savior, not Africa. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, it's interesting. It's interesting. But um, I wanted to make sure we hit, you know, one more point, you know, before, you know, we end the show because we've still got about a half hour. We may or may not go into overtime, you know, for those that want to listen in or maybe you have a question or a comment. The telephone number is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. And if you would like to speak, please press 1. But um, Raina brought this up earlier, and um, we we were talking about black women that, you know, that help to perpetuate patriarchy or, or black women misogynists. And so, Raina, did you want to talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I mean, I don't have like specific examples of uh, of these things. Yes. I mean, because because for the most part, these misogynistic women, they also uh, relegated themselves to the background. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So, um, but I did read a very interesting letter from the uh, and if, and forgive me because I don't remember her name, but um, the wife of um, Marcus Garvey. And mm-hmm. um, she had, she had written a letter basically um, telling black men that if they didn't assume the role that they needed to assume that black women would take that up. It was really an empty threat. You know what right. I mean? But, right. you know, but, um, you know, there was basically this notion that, you know, women were not feminine if they were in, in leadership. You know what I mean? Right. So. Right. <sighs> Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing. You know, I'm seeing the exclusion of, you know, black women, black girls, black trans women, and Black Lives Matter from some people, you know, and, you know, what I want people to understand is that the three women that started the Black Lives Matter, they're members of the LGBTQ community. And, you know, again, have people trying to co-opt this movement by excluding black women girls and trans women and you know this same thing happened like i said with the black you know civil rights movement the black power movement it happened you know with the abolition of slavery and it's happening again today and we cannot allow for this to happen and this is why i feel like with the different schools that you know we teach these things but we also empower you know these young people in particular girls and women So that they can understand their agency and and they can take it back. But, you know, we also have to kind of give a little bit more pushback to um, some of the religious um, undergirding um, in this because again, by us not seeing a lot of activity from, you know, people in the secular community, and there are individuals that are out there marching and protesting in their local cities. I see you, I see the pictures coming through my my new feed and I'm happy and I'm proud of you, and you keep doing it, you know, but you know, or, you know, us as organizations, you know, I know Black Skeptics Group collectively we've made statements about Black Lives Matter, and we made statements, um, about you know the race and we've gone out and we've gone out to marches exactly oh yeah you know i was going to add that too we've gone out to marches we put together a conference talking specifically about social justice and social justice issues as people of color this is why we do the webcast we do the podcast we donate money we donate time we donate resources you know and there's quite a few of us out here marching and rain correct because you know, I know for a fact her and Marcus have shown up to many things and a number of other people. There are people from Black Skeptic Chicago who are out here protesting and marching. We know this. And and you know, um and, and we're proud of them. And we want to continue that. But again, you know, atheism alone is not enough. Oh, and don't it forget the Kivus been the Kivus has been to to marches and you know what I mean? And I know you went to rallies, so People you know. was the great marshal. that that goes without saying. She posts all those yeah. pictures of her at these marches and posting and you know, all of the information exactly. she did with um black exactly bribes, but Some people may not follow her. Ah, so they okay. may not know. But I just wanted okay. to put it out there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Doctor Hutchinson, you know, she's definitely been, you know, a guiding light. For, you know, many of us, you know, she's definitely inspirational, uh, motivational, and, you know, a great support system. I mean, you know, she's incredibly encouraging to me, which is why I have so many, so much admiration for her, which is why, you know, um, we're doing this and we're preparing a statement about the NAACP bombing. Um, Well, not a statement. We're going to make a post on it, but we're preparing that, and that should be going up this week. But, um, you know, even though the mainstream media may not acknowledge it, you know, we acknowledge it, we we condemn it, you know, and we're going to start talking more about these things here. But, yes, you know, when all of this started, you know, um, coming about, you know, I was posting all of the Ferguson stuff, and I still post some things here and there, and I post more about Black Lives Mattering now, but, um, you know, we're going to post more information. The past few weeks, you know, I just kind of... Pull back a little bit. It was a little tired, but you know, get my energy back a little bit. But guys, post the information, share the information, get out here, help. Um, Red Ninja, what would you tell the people? How would you encourage them?
2: I would tell them that we're here for you, and that you're not alone,
0: yep.
2: and that exactly. we stand inside. We stand in solidarity with you, and that.
1: Absolutely.
2: You are on the right side of history in doing what you are doing, and your children and your grandchildren are going to thank you for it.
1: Exactly. That's right. That's right. You're not alone. You know, we definitely stand in solidarity with you, and black lives matter to us. You know, man, woman, child, you know, trans person, um, all of these lives. Everybody's life matters. And this is why we bring you all this information. We talk about it. And there are some times when we have to reinforce things that we've said in the past. We have new listeners. And then maybe you just didn't catch it that last time. But it's okay. You know, um, You know, we just want you to look it up. We want you to be informed. And we you know we've got to keep moving on. You know, that's why I encourage, you know, these young people out here Keep doing what you're doing. We're here. That's why we're doing these shows. Next week is part three, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the funding and, the, you know, the um, how these movements have been initiated, what were the sparks that caused these movements. Um, you know, we're just going to talk about a number of different things, and, you know, we're going to talk more about... The secular community and their role in this, or non-role, you know. But um, again, it's important, and we want to acknowledge the black women in history because again, a lot of people didn't know who Ella Baker was. They had no idea who Daisy Bates was. They, you know, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, Diane Nash, Dorothy Height. You know, um, you know, Miss Delta Sigma Theta herself, Dr. Dorothy Height. Um, you know, you need to go back and look these women up. You know, um, even with Neale Hurston and Lucy Parsons. Oh my goodness. Look Lucy Parsons uh, that right there, that woman <laughs> by herself. She's or um woman in America. I was, say, I was gonna say, or um Pauline Elizabeth Hopkins or Ida B. Wells or um uh, Mary McLeod Bethune or, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there's so many different women, you know what I mean, that have been so instrumental and who are not given, you know, nearly as much credit as they deserve, you know, right. for the work that they did, you know. Well,
2: right. And and I think that the reason why, one of the reasons why, is because when when you look at the history of black emancipation and, you know, and, the, and the history of the civil rights movement, um it's very much about controlling the narrative it's very much wow. about presenting the clean version of black history where mm-hmm. they they want to they want to actually constantly bring up guys like martin luther king and rosa parks who were nonviolent resistors and they want to present this thing that says if you just if you just slowly sit there and take it and gradually allow yourself to work within the confines of the rules that the white men have actually set up that eventually it's going to work out okay and these guys didn't have to resort to violence and it didn't have to resort to bloodshed in order for us to gain our rights but that's actually not true there were plenty of people that lived and died and spilled blood in order to actually have the rights that we have today at least the rights that we have so far there's still rights that we lack but Right. It's not the clean cut, you know, kumbaya narrative that our government wants us to be able to claim. Right, you know, and and, it's like, and, it's like, it's and, and what they don't tell it's you about controlling the narrative, right? Exactly. Right. Go ahead. And
1: what I was going to say, what they definitely don't tell you is that that nonviolence was leveraged with violence, because exactly. what was going yes. what was going on in this country was that there were a lot of black people who were sick and tired. You know, and they, and they were really, and they were, they were not, you know, they weren't, you know, they weren't listening to Martin Luther King telling, telling them, you know, that we should, we shall overcome. They didn't want to hear that crap. And and they were, they were out here in these streets and they were out here in these streets. And so, you know, at at the same, at at the same time that he's uh, telling people, you know, we shall overcome, there were riots all over the country. You know what I mean? There were, you know, there were you know, there were black people who were fighting back. They were tired of being bombed. They were tired of being, of living under right. threat,
2: you, yeah. know? And then, you know? it's That's amazing to thing. me, too, yeah. like, it's amazing to me, too, like, how much of a role the Black Panther Party actually played in our liberation, too. Right. And that gets downplayed to this very day. Guys like, you know, oh,
1: and,
2: and they Brown. weren't
1: even violent. And they weren't even violent. But what it was, was they were, there was such a fear that black people yeah. would take up arms and be violent. That they that the plant the Panthers were a major threat. You know? Exactly. And see, and the thing is, is that like I hit on three points. The first point, when um Rayna was talking about Martin Luther King, Rayna and Red Ninja, and they were talking about how. You know, there were already riots happening all over this country. We've talked about this, and we'll talk about it again. The people weren't feeling Martin Luther King. Less than 5% of the black churches supported King when he was out here, part of the civil rights movement. And, you know, there's a mistaken or, you know, um, the, this delusion that, that people think that the civil rights movement was based in religion, and it wasn't. It was a secular movement, and less than 5% of the church supported King. They weren't feeling him and his message. Secondly, you and you all were talking about, well, not you know, that, the black... Well- Hey, I'm sorry. I just want to say one thing about that. But a lot of these uh-huh. churches weren't really feeling weren't really feeling the civil rights movement anyway. Put it's that out there. Right. No, <laughs> no, yeah, right. Because they, they wanted weren't. the status quo. They didn't want to, right. uh, you know, upset their their mainstream white, you know, preachers and politicians. They wanted the status quo because that. they were more. Right, okay. and not just that, but I mean, to a certain degree. Um, Segregation um, made it such that there were particular people in the community that had power, right? And, yeah, and power a lot of these people, right? And so a lot of these people were scared, or, or, or not scared, but they, they decided that because they felt like the civil rights movement was going to fail, that they right. were going to get on the right side meaning that they were going to ally themselves with with the racist power structure so that they could maintain position and privilege. And that happens even to this day And and, and what we're dealing with over here in this community. But the second part that I wanted to talk about (laughs) was Black Panthers, with the Black Panthers, and their role, you know, and Ninja and Raina hit on it. And, oh, but, but i got to go back to the civil rights movement, because you know how me, I, mean. I get to forget my points and shit. Um, even though, you know, you have a lot of people focusing on the civil rights movement and how it was nonviolent, they had weapons. They had guns. They were able to protect themselves if the Absolutely. situation came to that. And I've posted a couple of articles um, in NPR interviews on my wall over the, you know, past few years but we'll post it again but you know um you know they were saying um we shoot back we shoot back and i mean if you go back and you look at what happened especially with um what happened over in wilmington north carolina and you know wall black wall street and all of that you know, black people were taking up arms, and you have black people taking up arms now, and that's why I'm going to tie it in with the Black Panther movement back then okay. with the taking up of arms. It's happening now because even in Texas, you have some black Panthers patrolling black neighborhoods, and that's just not just in Texas. This is happening in different parts of the country. Maybe I need to start posting that so you all can see they're not being violent, but they're doing the same thing a lot of these white militants are doing, but now the conservatives are upset, and they find it frightening that black people are walking around with semi-automatic weapons, patrolling and guarding our own neighborhoods. And and it's just interesting, because it's okay when they do it. But when we do it, you know, it, it, it's just it's, it's a national
2: disgrace. Hey, and, and check this. And I, and I just want to say, too, that, you know, for anybody that's still under the myth that, you know, Christians – that black Christians that participated in the civil rights movement were not willing to actually take up arms in order to defend themselves. I would encourage those people to look up the Deacons for Defense and Justice, because all right now, I mean the Deacons for Defense. These were these were Christian leaders and Christian clergymen who were willing to go out there and say we're not going to let our kids die out here. If you're asking us to be nonviolent, then you're going to have to be just as nonviolent. But as soon as you start you know, breaking out bats and guns. Well, guess what? You just raised the stakes, and I have to defend my home. And they did that for years. They staged marches. That's
0: and right. And
2: Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, had some things to say about um, the Deacons for Defense. And they said, "Well, I understand where you're coming from, but you're not watching our kids die.
1: That's right. Oh, you are that's watching right.
2: our kids die. You are seeing it. But the thing is." What you're dealing with now is the power structure. You're dealing with the people that are not willing to actually hurt you, but we're dealing with the people that are willing to kill us on a daily basis, and we have to do everything. Right. And we stand in solidarity with you, Dr. King, but you have to understand that where we differ is that we can't maintain nonviolence all the way because our opposition is not willing to maintain nonviolence all the way. That's right. That's right. And the Deacons for Defense and Justice are one of the most overlooked groups out there, and they, again – took a lot of their points from the Black Panther movement because the Black Panther movement actually encouraged a lot of those Christian leaders to stand up because so many of them were disillusioned with the very thing that Martin Luther King was selling, which was complete deference to nonviolence. It wasn't working for a lot of the people on the ground in the neighborhoods. It worked during Washington. It worked in the White House. It worked in the Senate to a degree. But it didn't work in Alabama, it didn't work in Mississippi, and it certainly didn't work in people's houses, going to schools, going to lunch counters. That didn't work.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And and one thing that I must tell people, and you need to understand this because, you know, some people don't understand the method to the madness. Let me tell you something. Radicals matter. A lot of ideas that you all and a lot of the rhetoric that, you know, even some of the stuff that I say, people think that it's radical, it matters. Because a lot of ideas that were once considered radical are considered normal today. And when you have someone that's, you know, bucking against the system, you know, us jaded malcontents out here, um, you're going to get radical responses. You're going to get a radical message. You're going to get, you know, radical alternative responses to things. It doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it different. You're not thinking the same way that I think about some of these things. And because some of the things that we do, you know, um, advocate and and it's part of our narrative, you know, some people find it intimidating or frightening or disturbing because it doesn't fall in line with the status quo. It does not fall in line with us just, you know, learning our place and sitting there and being docile and, and going along to get along. That is not what we do over here. You know, um, in order to have any type of movement, you need friction. You understand? And it's like this. If your skin is so thin that you can't take any type of criticism or critique, then you need to step out the game because this is just the beginning. Right. And so, you know, I'm looking at them and, you know, and I feel that to a certain degree, some of the things that we're bringing to the table, that I feel that the power structures, not only the political power structures, um, but also even within this, you know, community here, they fear some of our message. And that is why they're calling some of us radical. That's why some of them are saying that we're going overboard or it's too much or, or what have you, because it's shaking the foundation. It's changing the narrative. And you have some people feel as though their power is slipping, and, and, and I don't care. Nothing is stopping. We're still moving on. We're still going to talk about social justice. We're still going to call you out. We're still going to critique you. We're still going to do all of these things. You know,
2: like a record show. And I and I and I find it amazing too. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I apologize, but I okay. find it amazing too. And this may be, you know, trailing a little bit off the subject, uh, a little bit, but I find it amazing that we so many of our secular members are willing to actually take the focus away from what's happening on the ground within our communities. But they're more than willing to encourage violent rhetoric against what's going on in France with the whole Charlie Hebdo incident. Oh no. They have no problem advocating for radicalism on that front. They have no right. problem at all advocating for a violent reaction against Muslims in that country. Zero right. problem. But when we encourage radicalism on this side, in the country that we actually live in, and that we have maximum concern for because we're on the ground here, uh, well, you know that's too much. We can't have that. But but it's right. it's, it's yeah. cool to advocate. Can, can we talk
1: about Can we talk about Charlie Hebdo for a second? Okay, wait, 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 wait. Uh,
2: Before we do that.
1: The dial-in number Mm -hmm. is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. We only have six and a half minutes left in this broadcast, but we're going to go into overtime. So if you want to hear the overtime conversation, you have to dial in to 310-982-4273. Go for it, Rhina. Yeah, so, you know... um you know, just going off of what Red Ninja said, you know, there's a lot of people who are, um, you know, defending the cartoonists. And, okay, before I start, I don't want anyone to mischaracterize my views on this. So I'm going to say at the top of this, even though I don't feel that I should have to, that I don't support violence. Particularly right. not violence that is the, of the type that we saw in France. So no one right. mischaracterized me by saying that, you know, when you disagree with somebody, it is perfectly okay to pick up a gun. Okay? Right. That's not what I'm saying. But right. I, because of, of, of the experience of black people in the United States in terms of white supremacy, I view this whole Charlie Hebdo situation very, very differently than some people would. And my feeling on this is, is not not to justify what happened. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that um, in, in France and in, in throughout Europe, just as here in the United States, there is a lot of Islamophobia. And a lot of it is driven primarily by xenophobia and racism. Because right. the majority of people who practice Islam in the, in the world, are are brown people. And exactly. And and, and, and because and because most of these countries that we're focused on the United States and, and, and many countries in Europe are primarily Christian, you know, whether they're Catholic or Protestant, they're primarily Christian nations. You know what I mean? There's there's another dimension to this as well. And and, and you know we can t- we've talked about a little bit about race and, and, and identity, you know, and how racial identity comes, you know, interacts with religion to a certain extent. Right. right. So, um, so even when we're not necessarily talking about people who are, you know, people of color, we're talking mm-hmm. about people who represent a uh, culture, a, a ph- philosophical view that mm-hmm. differs Substantially from What is considered the norm And this makes a lot of people Profoundly uncomfortable And because of that we've seen In, in the United States And in Europe um, a, a resurgence In white supremacist movements Right We've seen right. a lot of, a lot of um, We saw the growth Of militias explode Of these, exactly. you know, these white Supremacist militias Ex, you know, explode after Obama was elected president. Um, you know, you can just look at the um, Southern Poverty Law Center website to see uh, the expansion, how this is, you know, changed after Obama. Um, same thing's going on in Europe. I mean, a few years ago we had the um, Swedish man. I believe that was, was that Sweden? I believe it was Sweden or was it, was it Greenland? I forget, but you remember the guy, the, the guy who uh, went on a killing spree essentially he was motivated um, by his white supremacist views and feeling as though the country's dynamic was changing. I believe that was Sweden actually. Um, That theme, that theme is actually also in a, in a, um, in a book series and and movie series. That's very popular called uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Um, there's a it refers to this sort of neo nazi white supremacist you know um resurgence that's going on but um but yeah, this is what's going on in europe and so you know for for people who live under those conditions i mean we've seen in the United States how even six have been attacked because of their because of you know their guards because they might wear a turban because they yeah. um they look you know, different, different from a lot wow. of people who regard themselves as quote, unquote, American, you know, um, right. because of the and, the, and because even, I mean, even when you look at the media, right? See, media and culture plays a major role. I mean, look at most of the major movies that have come out, um, particularly those that have like a sort of action thriller, you know, based content. A lot of those movies feature villains that are Muslim, or if they're not Muslim, they are people who are clearly of Middle Eastern descent, right? Right. Heavy accents, speak Arabic, or Farsi, or some other, you know, foreign language, you know, foreign North African language, um, you know So culture plays a role in these things. And so as a black person, when I see someone defend Charlie Hebdo cartoons uh, by saying, oh, it's just a cartoon, my mind goes back to racist caricatures that are found in things um, in, 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 in such childhood, uh, you know, beloved childhood cartoons like Looney Tunes. Okay? Looney yeah. Tunes is very racist.
0: Especially, right.
1: especially old Looney Tunes. I mean, just right. the ways in which Native Americans, Asians, black people were portrayed in these things. I mean, very, very hurtful images that are, that are shown. Um, there's even, there's even um, one really disturbing cartoon. And I remember that I didn't really feel comfortable with this as a child. It's um, Bugs Bunny shooting at Native Americans, singing one little, two little, three little Indians. Yep. Yep. Um, exactly. And and you know which is not which is not really a corruption of that song in the first place because that's exactly what the song refers to. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you know it's this this is considered ch- children's entertainment, which is part of why when people say that you know we have to be careful how we talk to kids about race and you know um, we don't want to um, we don't want to uh, warp them. You know what I mean? I'm like, the kids are already being warped. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they're already being... they are already been... They've already been... I mean, if you look at... I mean, there's even old photographs that you can find of black families that had been lynched or burned out of their houses. And there are children sitting in yes. front of these bodies, sitting in front of these burnt out houses, smiling, sometimes eating ice cream. You know right. what I mean? Like, so... To me, there's and really just and, like, you know,
2: and it's not like you can't find these kinds of images on the internet anyway. Exactly. Right?
1: I mean, you can find these sort of images on the internet, and so and and so when we you know when we talk about like Charlie Hebdo, for me, we have to think about it in a larger context, in a context where you already have oppressed minorities who are being told that they can't express themselves, you know, via right. wearing the burqa. Being told that they can't express their religious views, um, you know, people who are are very intolerant towards their religious views, even though their religious views have nothing to do with the religious views of people who, um, you know, have maybe engaged in, in in what is referred to as jihad. You know what I mean? They may be very, very moderate. They, you know, but they're still being um, repressed. You know what I mean? So you know, and at the same time that everyone's talking about freedom of speech, what about the freedom of speech of Muslims? What about the rights of Muslims? What about the rights of people of, of color, you know, who may have um, immigrated to France and elsewhere, you know what I mean? Right. Where their rights are being where their rights are being um, trampled upon. I mean, right now we're taught right now in Israel there are hundreds of thousands of of African refugees from Ethiopia and Eritrea and elsewhere who are in concentration camps, Yep, concentration camps, you know what I mean? So, you know, and this is not to say that, you know, uh, you know, Muslims, good Jewish people, bad. No, this is not that conversation. So (laughs) don't run, don't run and say that either, you know, but I think that we have to complicate our understanding of things. We have to, um, realize that the world is not black and white. It's not as simple as good, goodies and baddies. You know what I mean? Right. There, you know, Charlie Hebdo, yes, Charlie Hebdo had the right to make those cartoons. No doubt. Not saying that they, the, 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 the cartoons, um, that he didn't have the right to make the cartoons, but having the right to do something doesn't make it so. Doesn't make exactly. it right. And that's and, what uh, I need uh, to uh, also understand.
2: Now, I'm going to be careful here, and I'm going to say that um, no one has the right to kill over any cartoons either. And, you know, not not one of of us here. And I'm arguing that violence is the answer to any of these controversies, right? Right. And certainly, you know, the idea of freedom of speech has to be taken very seriously. Um, But at the same time, your freedom of speech must understand that there are going to be consequences to freedom of speech and you have to be and that without having to use violence you should be prepared for that fallback without actually having to resort to any violence and right I and the, I mean and send also sympathy, and I extend my sympathy out to the cartoonists and their families because of the fact that nobody should have to die over these cartoons but at the same Agreed. time understand yet yeah, but at the same time understand that when you look at these cartoons and when you see how some of these and frankly how racist some of these cartoons really can be um you you have to you have to kind of sit back and ask yourself is this really first of all if you're an atheist and you're thinking that creating caricatures of the people you're actually trying to win to your side if you really think that that's actually going to get people to consider the idea that there is no reason to believe in a god, then you're sorely mistaken.
1: Right. And I mean and and caricatures like and, and, and we say caricatures like these people aren't drawing stick figures. You know what I mean? They're drawing, you know, some some pretty some pretty racist um depictions. You know, I mean everything down to the hook nose, you know what I mean? And uh-huh. the um the stereotypical garb which is not necessarily the actual garb that is worn by you know people who practice islam you know what i mean um but it's um it's really it's really insulting and i mean and some of these same you know cartoonists have have said that they would never criticize um judaism or christianity in the same way so it so it really does become a matter of you know of of them um, doing this a, as a sort of um, representation of their white supremacist views. And, and, and I want to make another point about violence, you know, because everyone is acting like, you know, this violence has gone on. Like this is like, you know, people of France and, and people in the Western world are, um, are somehow just victims of, of Islamic violence or, or Western violence. No there's there's plenty of blame to go around but the violence didn't start with those terrorists last week you know what i mean March. it didn't start on 9 11
2: you know what nope. i mean
1: and there and there's and you know we can argue back and forth about who started what but i think that we have to definitely take a look at western imperialism and and interference in um in in the countries that comprise what we call the Middle East, I mean, even if you look at movies like like Argo, you know, it it you know you know they have in the be you know of course I'm saying movies like Argo because you know some people are not going to know where to go initially to get information on what happened right in um right. in Iran right and um and elsewhere right. But, you know, there was a period in the 1970s where a lot of these countries were already starting to modernize, right, or what we think of as modernization because we're coming from a very Western perspective, you know, when we talk about modernization most of the time. But most of these countries were very modern and and modernizing and they were, you know, leaning towards, you know, democracy. Um, But intervention is what prevented that. Just as intervention prevents a lot of a, a lot of um, democratic processes from um, the you know going through in a, in countries today. You know, when we don't like a leader, you know, we shut them down. We we support coups. We you know um, we use trade embargoes. We you know we use all of all of these things to interfere with the um, beliefs and and political views of. People in what should be a sovereign country you know what I mean and right. there's only so much of that 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 people are going to be able to take you know
2: right Right. And, 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 and the way I look at it I'm sorry go ahead go ahead
1: no no and, and I said and and so it's not to say that you know that violence is is a great thing but, you know, when we talk about violence, we have to be honest about violence. You know, we, the United States would not exist without violence. France would not exist as it does today without violence. You know what I mean? So there's this way that we have in, in the West of romanticizing violence when it comes to our founding, right, and right. to, um, in, you know, in terms of our freedom and, and, and all of that. We have all of these lofty ideals. But when other people try to seek those ideals, right, try to come up from underneath of our, uh, our you know, our colonialism and, and our imperialism, we then cry foul. Right. You know what I mean? And so there's something right. that we have to examine in that, you know? So that's just my and, point.
2: And, and my, my thing is, okay, so I will be the first one to admit that I don't consider Islam to be a valid religion or a valid belief system at all in any way. Um, We know that there are ideas in the Quran that are completely reprehensible, and we know that Muhammad um, most definitely was not somebody truly worthy of following. You know, when you sleep with nine- and six-year-olds and marry them as brides, I mean, you know, that, that that's the end of your respect.
1: Muhammad was not alone point. in that, though. We, we oh, should was, point no, out though that Muhammad was he not alo- alone in that. He, that he, was going he, on in Europe, he, too.
2: He, yeah. he, wasn't, he wasn't, and I'm not going to yeah. deny that. But yeah, what I, what I will say is this. If you're going to criticize Islam, you don't get there by criticizing the people inside of Islam. You criticize the ideas themselves. You right. criticize where they get their ideas, but you don't criticize the people. Because if you're prepared to criticize the people and the ideas, but you're not prepared to criticize those same ideas in regards to both Judaism and Christianity or the people, when you're not willing to go out to the extent to offend the religion that you were born into, um, that to me makes you a complete hypocrite. Because a lot of this, and you know, it's funny too, when you listen to, Like black Christians and because I've heard black Christians actually defend um, the outcry against you know Muslims and Charlie Hebdo and you know and the very kind of racist depiction that goes on in a lot of those cartoons and it only takes me asking a black Christian who defends let's say Charlie Hebdo all the way 100% because of the fact that they have this anti-Muslim bias it only takes me asking a black Christian How would you feel if we portrayed Jesus in the same way? How would you feel if we put Jesus up on a cross, you know, getting fellatio? How would you feel about, you know, the three and being portrayed? Oh, they'd be ready to riot. If you saw that, exactly. If you threw a cartoon (laughs) of Jesus in as, I would say, in as discouraging a manner as the cartoons that are drawn in Muhammad, there would be a full-scale riot.
1: Right. There would, there, exactly. there would and be I mean, no
2: turning the other cheek.
1: <laughs> right. And, and, and one more point about violence I want to make, because, you know, people talk about, like, oh, but nobody died when they drew, drew those cartoons. Really? Nobody died? So the dehumanization of people via, you know, cultural forms like cartoons has nothing to do with the way that they're viewed? Are right. you serious? Are, uh, really? We're going to make that argument in 2014 after we've seen 400 years of slavery and what you know, Jim Crow and all of these other um, you know, institutions have done to um, the reputations and the images that we see of black people, not just in the United States but elsewhere? And we're really going to make that assertion that somehow because it's a cartoon that somehow it must also be innocent you know what i no,
2: mean it, and right. and that's and and i think that that is that is a key point because again um if if one group of people are being caricatured and you're defending their caricature but you're not willing to defend your own caricature then you really have to kind of take a step back and just ask yourself how far are we going to actually take this before we come off looking like hypocrites um, right.
1: And I think, I think also it's, it's also a matter, uh, there's also a difference also when you're talking about caricatures, right? Cause we can caricature white people, right? And it won't have the same impact necessarily as it would if we caricatured someone who was Asian or African-American or of, of some other persuasion. Right. So it's like, you mm-hmm. also have to take into account the power dynamics, right? Um, when you, when you make fun of, um, you know, say white race, right? It doesn't really have that great of an impact because ultimately, white white people in general are empowered. They have more control. You know, they're and mm-hmm. even when they don't have necessarily power or money, um, they're still associated with the group of people that disproportionately have the most. So that also can you know confers upon them a certain amount of privilege, right? So exactly. I think, you know, you have to be, you also have to be very, um, you know, make sure that you keep that in mind. You know, it's, it, there's, you know, I think there was a, a few months ago, I think, or was it a few months ago? Like, Nick Cannon, I think, had done some kind of, um, you know, album or something where he had made oh, himself well, look white. Yeah. folks. Are- yeah. Yeah, and then and then of course there's the uh, Wayans brothers who did white chicks, and you know people are like, well, why is that okay and blackface is not okay? Um, I mean, and there are some people who are going to argue that white that you know whiteface is is just as harmful as blackface, and um, I think those people are crazy <laughs> given the history of blackface <laughs> and um, you know and just and just sort of the um, violence associated with it and the fact that it's been used to um, Uh, to uh, reinforce all of these uh, extremely narrative negative stereotypes about black sexuality and, and violence um, in a way that that's never really done with white chicks. Like it's pretty much like gentle ribbing when people, when black people do white face, right. It's mostly like, you know, you know, just making fun of people, not being able to dance on beat and that kind of stuff. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. Whereas blackface and 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 the like tends to be much more sinister. Um, it's it's much more aimed at, um, at it really just dehumanizing the person, intimidating the person, dehumanizing the person, um, devaluing their culture. Um, because because sometimes a lot of the blackface is done in in a comedic way, in a funny way, but it really is aimed at sort of devaluing the culture, Um, you know, like when you see um, things like, uh, what was that, that, that uh, movie, it was like, um, it was like the guy who wanted to be like a rapper, but he was like from Malibu.
2: Malibu's Most Wanted?
1: Yeah, Malibu's Most Wanted, right? Like, you know, when you see things like that, it's, in some ways, it's, it's about making fun of like low black culture, you know what I mean? Like this low thing. It's like, oh, why would this white boy want to be a part of that? That's really funny. You know, that he's right. trying to be a, a criminal. He's trying to be a gangster. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's it's the same. It's the same it's not the same. You know what I mean? It's just it's just not. It can't be because of the power dynamics.
2: So And it's also not about calling white people inferior. Right. Whereas, you know, right. I mean, it's, it's openly, really like, it clearly draws
1: black right. people as
2: being inferior in intellect.
1: Exactly. It's, it's, it's all about that. And, and, and that's, and that's all it is. I mean, you know, making fun of somebody, you know, dancing, right. is not the same, you know, like, you know, not being able to clap on beat. Like that's, you know, people clap on white people can clap on beat. Like we all know white people can clap on beat, but there's some people, black and white, who can't clap on beat, and that's funny. You know <laughs> but it is. Right. But um right. but, but yeah, I mean that's that's different. You know, it's 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 a difference of people being able to laugh with you and people laughing at you. You know? Right. right. And the char the Charlie Hebdo thing is about people laughing at you. It's a it's it's the kind of thing that gives people permission to say things like, oh, it's not just a whole uh, a few at bad apples in the bunch. It's the whole orchard, you know. That sounds like some pretty and you know and that's some pretty disrupt disturbing language personally because it sounds very similar to a lot of sort of the genocidal talk what we've heard in the past.
2: You exactly. know what I
1: mean about. Yeah, I mean, so it, you know, and these are things that you know. I'm sure Bill Maher wasn't like saying that we should commit genocide against Muslims, but it's that's the kind of language that that lends itself exactly. to that kind of to that kind of um, belief. It's the kind of thing that fuels um, the the sort of uh, domestic terrorism that we've seen in the United States. You know what I mean with people who are like. We got to, you know, get rid of these other people, these people who don't belong here, you know, the same sort of terrorism that that occurred um, at the NAACP building in Colorado, you know, so. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that's, you know, I'm glad that you all, you know, kind of put all of that in context and and you know positioned your arguments because you know i've been seeing a lot of that online and just sitting there watching different people and especially with some people in this community they can post up all of these i am charlie just sweet charlie all of this but they can't say black lives matter right yeah mm. so, right
2: so like, yeah that's what i'm and, saying and the fact- And the fact that, again, that they would would endorse this radical strategy against, you know, the Muslims that were caricatured in this Charlie Hebdo instance, the fact that they would actually endorse radical, violent behavior and endorsing strong reactions against a group of people in one incident and yet decrying that same and not nearly as malicious behavior from the black community in regards to the police, the fact that we actually have real violence, and don't get me wrong, people died with the Charlie Hebdo incident. That's not not an issue. But the fact that that behavior can actually be corrected to an extent as a result of not doing these caricatures and actually attacking the ideas of Islam instead of caricaturing an entire people on the one hand and yet, on the same time, we are not willing to confront the idea that we're not willing to be radical in the face of violence That is that nothing is actually being done about, that people are right. not actually willing to correct. And the exactly. fact that people are just flat-out hypocrites about applying a solution on one hand that works and not applying another solution on another hand that doesn't work, and the fact that you're not willing to be all the way consistent in your methods, to me, just screams hypocrisy. How are you going right. to actually endorse radical behavior on one side and then say that same radical behavior in the face of justified oppression does not work on the other side and, and quote-unquote, makes us look bad? I mean, come on now. Right.
1: Right. Right. Exactly.
2: Get the, get the fuck and out I, of I the mean, face. I mean, it's
1: like <laughs> – oh, and I was going to say one more thing. It's so funny because it's it's like – all of these, and I'll say this about the atheist community, all of these atheists are so vocal, so vocal about this you know, Charlie Hebdo's case none had anything to say about the right. assault on Gaza right. you know what I mean? None had exactly. anything to say about the humanitarian, ongoing humanitarian crisis in Gaza, about the fact that the israeli government targeted hospitals right you know what i mean exactly. deliberately oh, and, targeted and then, hospitals you know and and is, is basically squeezing the life out of the people of Gaza, and the and 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 infiltrating further and further into the into the west west bank you know what i mean it's like and it's, and, 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 and
2: and oh go ahead they're, I know. I was gonna say they're also not willing to raise a finger against violence done against several other people in Africa. They're not willing to talk
0: about. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right.
2: They're not willing to talk about that. They're not going to get angry over right. And they're not going to talk about drone strikes.
1: Right. Right.
2: And they're they're not not going to talk about drone strikes. They're not going to get angry Mm -hmm. over that. They're not going to get angry over the war in Iraq and in Afghanistan. They're not willing to get angry at that. No, we can't right. have that. They're not
1: going to talk but about right. They're angry. not going to talk about the right of Palestinians to choose their own leaders. You know what I mean? Right. Cuz that's freedom of speech too. Right? <laughs> right. But they're but they're not allowed to choose their own leaders even if they are from Hezbollah, which is really stupid because, you know, this is how you radicalize people, right? You radicalize them by not allowing them their choices, right? By taking away their rights. And and what's really interesting is is that if you look if you actually look, you know they they would have a better chance of of seeing the sort of temperance and um, you know the sort of ramping or, or, or tamping down of violence if they actually allowed Hezbollah to rule, you know what I mean to actually engage in the in the in the business of of rebuilding Gaza and, and right. governing the Palestinian people. They probably would see better results, but the problem is is that there are people who are, who are against a Palestinian state ever being um, a, a reality. They don't want to see it right. happen.
2: And, exactly. and don't forget, too, that a lot of these guys um, who fully endorse, you know, radical behavior against, like, the Muslim community as a result of the Charlie Hebdo incident these are a lot of the same guys that would agree with you know a lot of what Sam Harris is saying about the fact that Israel has, I would say, the moral upper hand in the situation. These right. guys were already not just anti-Muslim, but anti-Arab and anti-Palestinian.
1: Right. They're really anti-anything that isn't white Western culture, because they'll say things like, you know, Islam is the, is the mother load of, of bad ideas. Really? Because I can think of a mother load of bad ideas that come out of Western culture, a mother load, you know, one of them kept, one of them kept people who look like me in bondage for over 500 years. If you're talking about, um, Brazil and elsewhere, because some of those places didn't, you know, get rid of slavery until much later, you know? Um, Right, it's a motherload of bad ideas. I mean, in in many ways, many of the um, beliefs that are are um, held about capitalism and the economics are the motherload of bad ideas. You know what I mean? That's not to say, that's not to say that you know capitalism itself is, is is necessarily a bad thing. It's but the way it's certainly implemented. You know what I mean? There's a problem there. You know exactly.
2: And exactly. you know the. Mud- Racism is also the motherload of bad ideas.
1: Absolutely. Sexism
2: is the motherload of bad ideas. Homophobia Absolutely. is the motherload of bad ideas. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: You got to get white supremacy
1: is the motherload of bad ideas.
2: Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Western imperialism is the motherload of bad ideas. So, right. Right. Again, I'm not saying I'm not up here saying that you know Islam is right. Okay, but the fact of the matter is... But it's not is, all wrong either. It's not all wrong
1: either. Nobody's all right and nobody's all wrong. You know what I mean? Right. But right. in, in right. this situation,
2: you know? And guess what? If it is wrong, you attack the idea. You don't attack the person.
1: Right. Exactly. That's what, that's what exactly. I'm
2: getting
1: and, and And that's one of the issues, you know, I've been sitting back and letting you all talk, but I'm glad you brought that point up about, you know, attacking the ideas or the ideology and not attacking the person. And, and and that's what we've been talking about from the very beginning, even with, you know, people in the secular community, when they go after, you know, the their the religion or whether it's Christianity, Jehovah Witness, you know, Seventh-day Adventist or what have you, you know, you, you attack the ideology. But, you know, I, this is a point that I meant to make earlier, and I apologize, because, just came back to me. We talk about how, you know, in this community, as as Dr. Hutchison says, you know, the fetishization of church-state separation and creationism. You know, what a lot of people don't understand is that Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons have done more for the separation of church and state than the atheist community. Anyway, I just thought I'd make that point. I thought you all would find that interesting.
2: And the Jehovah's
1: <laughs> Witnesses, right? Yes, yeah. and, and actually, and actually, strongly. oh, go and ahead. Also the thing I is
2: like this, and this, there's this myth, and I'm sorry, um, but there's this myth going around that Christians also don't defend this, but that's not true. The leader what? of the American Committee for the Separation of Church and State is a Church of Christ minister. Right, Right. it's true. So. So I mean the fact that the fact that and his name is Reverend Barry Lynn by the way, he's awesome. Um if you ever get a chance to read his book, Pie Damn Politics and that read. But I, I wanna come back to that. Like we can't make this caricature and think that, you know, Christians are our enemies. That's exactly. just flat out not fucking true. Period. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Well,
1: exactly. I actually I was gonna tell you guys I I was watching a lecture the other day and I got to go back and look at it cuz I couldn't I couldn't finish it all. But just before I cut it off, uh the um <laughs> the, the um scholar, the professor that was giving this particular lecture actually was talking about the um, you know, the secular uh, community, probably one of the most beloved figures, uh Thomas Jefferson, right? And um <laughs> And they were talking about how he actually, even though he, you know, wasn't, um, you know, wasn't a religious person, at at least not in the sense um, that other people might have been at his time, um, you know, with uh, taking out all the miracles of Jesus and whatnot. And, you know, (laughs) but um, he basically, but the scholar was talking about how um, at one point Jefferson actually aligned himself with evangelical Christians. And I have to go back and listen to that <laughs> because because I wasn't able to listen to it, but I thought it was interesting. I'll put up the link in your on your page, Kim. Please, please, I thought please, that was please. pretty interesting. But yeah, but see, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up and you know put that out there, and we'll take a look at it. And I'm glad that Red Ninja chimed in about you know because you know for all of the you know the all of the you know, posturing that's done in the atheist community about them filing all these lawsuits and, you know, big on separation of church and state, I really haven't seen them do very much. only thing I've really mm-hmm. seen are holding conferences and conventions. is a big old frat party, and they put up billboards and take out ads that are offensive to most people, you know, and, and, I mean, they have the right to do that. I'm not arguing that. But when you go and you do the research, you'll see that it's actually believers that are doing more for the separation of church and state than the atheist community. Right. That's why I sit back and I'm looking at and I'm like, you know, you're talking about separation of church and state and you're making fun of, you know, believers, but you're not really doing anything. All they're doing well, well, is... Kim, Kim i'm gonna let's tell it um, just so that your our our um audience has an idea of um of what we're talking about and you know doesn't think we're making it all up um you know some of these organizations have five oh one c 3s right right so you can actually go and look up what uh, what their tax filings look like right, right. um and I, I can't remember the website right now, I'm looking it up as we speak. But um but you can actually see um what they're spending their money on relatively based on, you know, maybe the prior year's tax tax filings, right? But um right. you know, some of them some of them are saying that they're educational organizations and they provide information on this, that and a third. But if you actually dig into their tax filings Maybe they took in five million dollars, and only three three million three thousand got used on education. You know what I mean? So it's like right. you have to really be careful who you're giving the money to, who you're giving your money to, who you're um, investing in. You know? And like and like Kim said, like I don't I don't have a problem with people putting up. Like I don't have a problem with people necessarily offending people. You're gonna offend people regardless, right? There are people who are offended at the mere thought. It Kim and 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 the rest of us on on black free thinkers don't profess a belief in God, right? Some people are All just right. going to be offended by that. So it's not a matter of you know appeasing people or you know not offending people, not you know. But there's a, there's a way that you can that you can bring up things and criticize things that doesn't necessarily. Um, you know, that doesn't necessarily amount to, you know, yelling fire in a crowded theater. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's, it's like, you know, you don't say, you don't call a black person a nigger, particularly not to their face. You know what I mean? And, and, you, and, you, really, and you really shouldn't do so and expect them not to react in some way. You know what I mean? Right. Not necessarily that they won't, re, not necessarily saying that black people every time they're called nigger are going to react with violence. But there are some of us that will. You know what I mean? Right. And, you know, if you get your ass knocked out, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm not, you know, I mean, you have to understand the history of that word. You know what I mean? That word is associated with a very violent history. And some of us, when we're called that word, we take that as a threat. You know what I mean? And it's interesting that you would say that because, again, you know, I got a book in the mail. I know y'all are saying to y'all all these damn books. Yep, all these damn books. I just picked up the book and the title of the book is called Nigger, The Strange Career of a Troublesome Word, and it's written by Randall Kennedy. And this, this is that's a small little compact book. I should be able to read this in the afternoon. we gonna have we're gonna have a show talking about that specific word and the history of that word. And why white people should not be able to say it. And what's interesting is on uh, one particular um, secular podcast, they had some people of color as, you know, panelists or guests on the podcast. And the white guy kept asking, why can't they say that word? Why would, do right. you want to say that word? That's what I'm right. to what, what do you get out of it? What do you get out That's
2: of like, it? Why the, fuck are you, why the fuck are you trying to own that word? Really? Right. There's nothing
1: positive about that word. Like, why would you want
2: to say that word? It's gotten to the point where I refuse to use that word in conversation myself so as not to look like a hypocrite, and it's just like, okay, no. You don't get to use that word. You don't get to own it. You don't get to spin it into something positive because it never was positive to begin with. So just stop that shit
1: right and see and and this is the thing when 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 they make questions and statements like that and other things that we see like i say all you have to do is go and look at the comments section if any of these larger mainstream organizations say anything that about racism or being anti-racist or anything you look in the comment section if it's about black people they are going to go off i remember on one particular blog they made a post about uh, a group here in chicago the chicago latino atheists you know and i know the group i've been to a couple of their meetings nice guys and, and young women and um basically the comments were horrible on that post and 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 you see it a lot in this community and then they get upset and angry with us when we start talking about the racism the sexism and all these different things in this community and and why we formed our own groups, and in particular, we have our own conference now talking about social justice, talking about the things that we find important to us and in our world and our lives. And, you know, they want to come out and they want to say they're against racism, they're against sexism, so on, homophobia, transphobia, but they're recruiting people from groups that are known, you know, racist and known, you know, sexist, so on and so forth. You look at the comment section, and these are comments from many of their members. Look at what your members are saying. They don't, they don't put it in place. They don't put them in place. They don't chastise it. No, nothing. They ignore it. And then, you know, and that's why, you know, I didn't really expect much from them when it was when we were talking about Black Lives Matter. You know, I was really surprised that you know a couple of people who made it to our you know, our conference actually made it there. I never thought I'd right. see them there. they made it there and so you know um you know hopefully they were able to take something away that was positive um you know I, i don't know but at the same time When we tell them that we don't believe them when they say that they're not racist, we don't believe them when they say that they're not sexist or misogynist, and we don't believe them when they say that they're not homophobic, the reason why we don't believe you is look at the comment section. Look at the people that you're leading. Look at the people you're trying to recruit. And then you turn around and call us SJWs, and then you have a problem with us talking about race. You want us to just ignore it like it doesn't exist and it's going to go away. And, but yet you want, you want to address, you know, LGBTQ issues, which are very important, you know, and, you know, I'm not putting that down, you know, um, because we talk about LGBTQ issues all the time, but what I'm going with that is because the LGBTQ movement, you know, again, they co-opt the people of color and push them to the back and put you know white people up front so that it would appeal to the mainstream basically they wanted to get their regular white guy status back see even over here in the atheist community you'll hear them saying that this oppression is not fun they don't like it you know they just want to be regular guys again and that's what happened with the lgbtq community and and that's why you know we show some of the parallels because at the end of the day they just want their regular white guy, white privilege white status entitlement you know rolled back and they're going to throw people of color up under the bus. Look at what they're doing now. They won't even acknowledge, you know, our issues and, and the things that are happening with us. So, I mean, what do you expect at the end? But what they do is they trot out a couple of people, you know, you know who they've appointed. Why? Because these people will say what they want them to say. And they, they put them out there, they trot them out there, and in and. and and people I just I don't understand because it's like you really need to check into why. And you need to really check into what. And and you know, I'm just gonna leave it there because we're doing what we need to do. We're focused on social justice and that's that. But as far as me, Kimberly, you will not find me on the pom-pom squad holding up any type of signs or anything regarding, you know, being an atheist cheerleader and all of that because I don't like what I'm seeing. Well, I can't see you.
2: And I uh, couldn't see and, you on and, the pom-pom
1: squad I, for anything, really.
2: <laughs> and I've, I, I have to say, too, that I've actually been to a couple of conferences, like mainstream atheist conferences, and, you know, I've actually asked, I've actually gone in and you know, like, asked pertinent questions about like the various talks and things like that. And you know, I've had people come in and say, "Oh, you would be such a great voice for the secular community and all this other stuff." And it's just like, eh. and I, you know, I'd rather focus on things other than just why we shouldn't believe in God. You know what right. I mean? It's just like at, right. that. I'd rather focus on this over here. And about actually focusing on things that matter to me as a black man. And right. not just Hi, God doesn't exist, believers are stupid and you know, all this all this rhetoric. I mean you're not right. When you when you're when you're at the end of the day, when people are done with their religion, then what? You get people to let go of Christianity, you get people to let go of Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and all their belief systems, and everybody gets to believe everybody gets to accept that God doesn't exist. Okay, great. You've done your job there. Now what? Right. Right, exactly. Now what exactly.
1: Exactly. Well, exact. Red Red Ninja, I would like to I would like to uh, to invite you personally to come to Houston. We'd love to have you. Because, you know, we definitely enjoy talking to you. So if you can make it out, we'd love to have you. You know, just um, hit me up in the inbox, you know, let me know if you can come, and we'll put you on a panel. So that's our personal invite. And don't take this lightly. We don't ask everybody. No, no, no. no. Like, you know, <laughs> so yeah, you know, if you can get to Houston next October, you know we we'd be honored to have you as part of you know um, our moving social justice conference.
2: Thank you. You're I, quite I welcome. Very seriously. I take that well, quite, let us very seriously. Let us problem. know
1: if you want to come. But.
2: I look um, forward to it.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Well, hey, I'm out, Kim. This is a great show. Thank you for having me. As always, yeah. oh, it's always a pleasure. You and Red, and again, we'd like to thank all of the listeners. You know, whether you were listening live or um, on the archives, you know, we appreciate you. We want you to know that, and so another reminder, Moving Social Justice 2 will be taking place next October at Rice University. Um, It will be sponsored by Houston Black Nonbelievers, that's our host group. It's also sponsored by Tony, Dr. Anthony Penn and and Rice University, and of course, Black Skeptics Group um, with Dr. Sakivu Hutchinson. And of course, people of color beyond faith. and so you know, um, you know, we thank you guys. We thank you for the support that we've gotten, you know um, over the past year's been absolutely phenomenal. We debuted October sixteenth of 2013. And you know, October eleventh of 2014, we had our conference. That was our you know our first conference, and so we're doing it again this year. In Houston, Texas, the year after that, we will be in a DMV area, which is D.C., Maryland, um, Baltimore. We're putting all, all, I'm sorry, Virginia. I don't know why I keep saying it. I was about to correct you. I was yeah. like, she's going to get it. There she goes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so Virginia. I you know, I do that all the time and I think I just called it, I think I've called it Baltimore on numerous occasions. Forgive me people. I know Baltimore begins with a B and not a V but um and then after that is coming to Chicago. And then for the fifth year we're still trying to work out some things to see where we want to have it. In the fifth year, more than likely it'll be somewhere in the south. So that way we have the West Coast, the Southwest, the East Coast, the Midwest, and the South. And so then we'll start all over again on the West Coast. So, you know, we're trying to move it around. Uh, We're looking for allies. We're actually looking for believers. We actually do want believers um, on these panels and on these webcasts. If you have an interest, you can email us, peopleofcolorbeyondfaith at gmail.com. Again, that's peopleofcolorbeyondfaith at gmail.com. Well, that's a mouthful. You can also email us at blackskeptics at gmail.com. Again, blackskeptics at gmail.com. We are a 501c3 organization, so you can make contributions via those two email addresses. Um, via PayPal and just put in a comment or the memo section what you want it used towards. If you want us to use it toward our outreach for HIV and AIDS, toward our outreach with the homeless toward our, you know, back to school outreach, toward the conference or the first in the family scholarship. Fundraising should be starting for that really, really soon. So, you know, if you're going to make a contribution, tell us what you want us to use it for specifically. If, if you just want to just give a donation, nothing specific, that's fine. We can use that as well. So Dr. Hutchinson, um, Black Skeptics Group, and, you know, we thank you. Um, for your support, and we've only just begun. This is just the beginning. So this was part two of a four-part series. The fourth one, we will be looking specifically at Mark Anthony Neal's show, I mean, book, Looking for Leroy, as well as Bill Hook's book, um, We Real Cool. Okay? So um, look those up. Do a little reading. That's going to be the fourth show, and next week, You know, I'm trying to get this one guest in. I'm going to reach out to her and see if she'll be able to make it. But, you know, on that note, we're out of here. You all have a lovely Sunday. It is a balmy 30 degrees in Chicago. I guess I'll go outside today. It's 30 degrees. So, all right, y'all, you take it easy. And Raina and Red and everybody, it was a pleasure. You all have a good weekend, okay? All All right, right, take care. Take care. Bye. Bye.